My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. Number one is you can go to iTunes and write a brief review. Or number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Maria Farrell. Maria is an Irish writer and keynote speaker on technology and the future. She's one of those hidden gems that I discovered absolutely thanks to Cory Doctorow. And her articles on, for example, how to deal with the end of the world, feminism, and our smartphones, uh, or why the internet must be, uh, must be more than Facebook, and especially my all-time favorite of 2020, the prodigal tech pro, have become some of my favorites that I have read for the past year. So without further ado, welcome to Singularity FM, Maria. Thanks a million, Nicola. I am such a huge fan of this podcast. I can't tell you how much of a thrill it is to be on it. Thank you. The pleasure is entirely mine. I honestly think those articles are like absolute gems and uh, the Prodigal Tech Pro is like a piece of genius, I, I swear to you. And and we'll get back to that. But before we begin, perhaps we should ask, who is Maria Farrell? If I were to meet you in person somewhere and I never heard of you, never read any of your stuff, and we just introduce each other in a pub. Who is Maria Farrell? Oh, man. So um, because I'm a writer, normally if we met in a pub, I would absolutely be operating in stealth mode. Um, I would probably tell you as little as possible about myself because I would be more interested in hearing about who you were and how you fitted in and what your stories were. Um, so that's that's the, you know, the writer side of things is um, everything is just kind of material and everything is fascinating. Um, you know, I know all my own stories. They have no interest for me. So, um, but that's not, the, the conceit of the question is, yeah, who are you? So um, I am a writer who's come to being a writer via the Seneca route. Um, you know, I lo loved reading and writing, obviously in school, you know, so all, all writers have always been, I think, readers. And I was very well brought up, um, not just by my parents, but by my older brother, Henry Farrell, who is a political um, scientist. And he brought back a lot of science fiction and fantasy to our house when we were teenagers and a lot of postmodern literature. So um, the way I think of myself is absolutely always through and in and with science fiction. That is just my native literary culture. And so in my early 20s, I figured there's no point writing. I have nothing to write about yet. And so I went to had various careers, um, film industry, film production, and TV, and then tech policy, um, which I've been in for 20 years living in different places from London to Paris, Brussels, uh, Los Angeles, Washington, DC, then Edinburgh for a stint as an army wife and uh, now back in London again. So I guess I've been, um, I finally kind of found my material and, uh, and I've been writing on the blog Crooked Timber for about, I think we've been doing it for about 15 years or so. And that's where I've learned to write. And so the times I have kind of come back to the skill of writing, I hope, but with now, I know what my life's work is. I know what my material is. And so probably if I wasn't operating in stealth mode, what would I say? I would say, um, I don't know what I would say. There are so many labels. I could say I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white lady um, <laughs> you know, who lives in, who lives in, in a city. 
um, or I could say I'm an immigrant in an age that despises immigrants and yet relies on them. Um, there are so many ways to, you know, to to, to feel that orange. So um, I guess I'll probably just leave it at that. Yeah, and notice how all of those underplay your own self. You know, my wife always says that a sign of personal development when you need, meet a new person is, is always how much questions they ask versus how many answers they're focused on giving. Uh, you know, you know, you clearly focused entirely on the questions that you want to ask of the other person. You're clear, clearly more curious about them and want to find more about them than them finding more about you. Uh, and that's pretty much the best compliment that my wife can pay to anyone that she's met. Because as she always says, uh, it's a sign of personal development. And it's a thing that I often fail, I have to say, even though I'm supposed to be Socrates. Um, I fail, I fail that probably 50% of the time. Uh, so I need to, to work a lot more on that. So great. Now both my wife and you are inspiring me to do better. So let me ask you though, which part of Ireland are you from? Just out of curiosity. Oh yeah. Um, so I was born and spent my first five or six years in Dublin, um, in Dunleary. And, and then actually my dad um, is now retired, but he, is, he was a surgeon. And so we moved to England, the, the north of England in Darlington for about two years. And then we went back to Ireland. Um, he got a job and uh, in Tipperary in Cashel. So I am a Cashel woman. Um, although most monster people would say I'm a bit of a blow-in, um, but um, I'm a Tipperary woman as well as a Dublin woman. So I'm a bit of a mix. You know... Let me ask you some question that totally popped out in my head right now for totally kind of crazy. I don't know even where it came from, but it's going to sound very strange and kind of unrelated. But, you know, Ireland is a small country and one person who's been making uh, or getting a lot of public attention in the last, I don't know what, seven, eight, ten years has been Conor McGregor, uh, you know, UFC fighter. What do you make of him as a representative of Ireland? Out of curiosity, because you're such a cultural critic, you know, technology is a big part of our culture and you nail sort of the core of the cultural tendencies and issues and problems and, and things we must be aware of and beware of. What do you make it? Because that's kind of like many people now, oh, Ireland, US, UFC fighting champion country, Conor McGregor, who is kind of super scandalous, scandalous type of guy. You know, what do you make of all that? Uh, yeah, I, I, funnily enough, I haven't actually thought about him all that much, and I probably should have. Because um, he's I mean, right now one of the most successful Irish kind of self-made people. He takes the media everywhere he goes by storm in any kind of field. He's an investor. He has a whiskey. He's so many things. Uh, he's the best in the world. If you listen to him, he's the best thing for Ireland that ever happened in the history of Ireland and for the world probably too. Um, he's not a person I've given a huge amount of thought to beyond kind of noting him and going, wow, clearly a force of nature, you know, a self-made media sensation. Got some kind of somewhat antisocial tendencies that I don't particularly love, um, but um, but oddly enough, I, I I guess he exists in a sort of a cultural bubble that I just don't particularly have access to. So I think probably a lot of aspects of the Conor McGregor phenomenon have have more or less passed me by. Yeah, and I don't even remember if he's also a Dublin boy, uh, but 
We'll be speaking about narratives a little later on and how they connect to technology. And and maybe that's why he popped into my head totally randomly, but maybe not so randomly, because you have that whole narrative of the fighting Irish. And he's like, he's put the claim on living the mythology, on sort of embodying the mythology, on sort of taking the mythology into reality, right? Yeah, of course. And, you know, when I was thinking about him, you're so right. That's exactly the the kind of the, the pre-made pre-cooked story that he drops into is, you know, the fighting Irish, they don't obey rules, they'll have fight in the streets, you know, they'll drink and do whatever. And um, whereas that, when I was thinking about him, I was thinking more like a Loki kind of a, you know, um, a slightly, you know, an unrules bound kind of, uh, you know, that kind of Viking uh, sort of um, uncontrollable kind of, kind of godlike um, rascal. Um, but yeah, yeah, he does, of course, fit into fit into the fighting Irish thing, which, surprise, I'm not a huge fan of, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, no, and, and the strange thing is that I think you may even have a slightly more positive opinion of him than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic because I live here. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, and and, and of course, he's, he's an Irish boy after all. So, yeah, I, I can sympathize with that. Um, okay, so... Let's go let's go back on topic here then. Where should we begin? What in your view are the biggest issues that humanity is contending with today that our civilization is or must resolve if we are to survive and hopefully thrive in the 21st century. So perhaps we should start with the big picture and then we should zoom down to whatever narrow topics we figure out. Sure, yeah. Um, I think the biggest sort of meta issue that we're facing is uh, we have to look our own failure in the face and we're just not ready to do it. And and I think the biggest issue we're facing, you know, to do with climate change, um, the corrosion and in some places collapse of democracy um, and rampant economic and social inequality all over the world to the point where some people have called it a global civil war is... Um, is that things are getting worse. And at least those of us who've grown up in a post-enlightenment kind of political culture have always sort of felt that we were part of a narrative of things were getting better. You know, we're, we're going to have the enlightenment and we're going to have the, you know, the reformation and we'll have science and science will tell us things and those things will be true. And on the basis of which we will build better societies that generationally improve. And of course, that kind of, you know, the idea of human progression as and almost, you know, our if you're on the left, the kind of historical materialist version of that, that says, you know, we will, the structures of society will cohere in certain ways as to create a revolution. Like all of those kind of the engine of history constantly motoring forward, that has come to a stop in a very profound way that I think all of us around the world are reckoning with, because all of the narratives of improvement and progress, um, they, they just are swept away in the face of climate change and so many other things that we're facing. And so before we even get to the point of dealing with those issues um, and those, you know, mega wicked problems that, you know, they're part of them, I think we have a sort of an imaginative um, challenge. I'm going to try and put it in a positive sense in that we have to start imagining our way into a future that is going to be materially worse than the present is for many of us, by no means all of us. Um, 
and trying to imagine ways to live lives and to think of futures that are, you know, materially less comfort and less abundant for many of us, um, but they're nonetheless good. And, you know, we're going to be dragged kicking and screaming into that in so many different ways. I think a lot of the Trump moment is, you know, the fact that a lot of people in America almost unconsciously are aware that we are at the probably just the beginning of a declinist narrative. Things are getting worse for a lot of people. And, and I think a lot of the anger and denialism, denial, you know, is one way to deal with that. Like, you know, on, you can sort of take a psychoanalytic approach and go, we generationally have a massive, are we about to F-bomb on this podcast? We are allowed to say whatever we want to whatever say. We want. Right. Well, so like... I don't edit or cut <laughs> yeah. out your character, your personality. Actually, your persona and your language are part of who you are and your narratives and the way we speak, just like their narrative of who I am, whether we like it or not. Because, you know, one of my earliest fear of starting a podcast was first, uh, you know, my accent, most of all. I was like, okay, people are going to listen to me and say, well, this guy doesn't even speak proper English. Forget about, you know, listening to him, right? So we all have these stories that tell us why we're not good enough and why we're sort of insufficient. And that was my story that I had to overcome. And I still struggle with it sometimes. But, you know, so anyway, instead of hiding it, I'm kind of, I decided to like confront it and put it, share it. Um, and so we can say anything we want and be who we are. That's the whole point. Cool. Thank you very much. Sorry, it's uh, <laughs> I've got permission. I've got the class pass because yeah, I you know I think Anglo-Saxon words can be quite useful. Um, they're all words to me. I'm a writer. It's they're all you know. You're Irish and I'm available. Bulgarian yeah. originally, so right. Yeah. Come on. These are yeah. Um. So yeah. So basically. Uh, I would say that, yeah, the, you know, the big kind of meta issue we're facing is is um, there are a couple of ways collectively and globally we can deal with the fact that life is going to go seriously downhill in some very important ways. And one is anger and denial and, you know, fine and othering and blaming other people and doing the, the Trump voter thing, which um, it's 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 not it would not be my chosen way. But in inside the kernel of all of that denial, denialist anger is a belief and a noticing that yeah like things are very fucked up and yeah that, that acknowledgement was actually key to understanding you know my wife's family half of her family that's to say on her mom's side is from rochester new york and all of them voted for donald trump in two, 2016 uh, and the reason was precisely of that narrative because he was the only one who had a story that acknowledged that things have gotten worse for them. And, you know, if you're from Rochester, New York, that used to be called Kodak City. And after Kodak went bankrupt, now that city is literally like Detroit. It's like a dead city. It's destroyed. If you go downtown, it's like locked up stuff, boarded windows. It's horrible. Um, you know, the property value went down because people don't make so much money anymore. It's, it's just really, really bad. It's a, it's a town or a city with former glories like Detroit in decline. And so Hillary didn't have that narrative at all to capture those, voice, th those votes. And it's also another reason why they voted for Donald again in, in yeah. the last election. You know, none of them that I knew changed their vote or their mind on him even. Right. Yeah, and part of it is yeah. the power of that narrative that you're talking about so, so well and acknowledging. But 
acknowledging the, the fact that we have a problem, but what do you make, and, and I think you're kind of expressing my own sentiment there, what do you make of Roger Penrose and, uh, you know, the better angels of our nature, very voluminous book that claims that we're better than we've ever been, or uh, the next step up from there, I think, which is kind of the most uh, tech utopian story ever come of Silicon Valley is like abundance. The future is better than you think. Right, so not only the present is the best we've ever had, but the future is better than you think. Well, it is for those guys. It's great. Come on, they live at the pinnacle of a civilization that is wildly unequal and that is far more interested in, um, you know, putting sensors in toothbrushes than cleaning water, clean water for people to drink. So yeah, of course it's great for them. Um, you know, when you think about the Trump voters and you know the profound and you know nihilistic racism that is their fundamental view of the world. Um, it's because they see it as a zero sum game and it's, you know, it's gonna be a epic Manichaean battle and it's a fight for survival. And they decided that they're only interested in white people and white men. Um, and, you know, that's the, the kind of the trumping. And I see exactly the same in some Silicon Valley people I have interacted with. Um, I did a job a, a few years ago about, um, it was just a comms job for, um, I'm, Kind of trying to figure out my way around my NDA here. Um, basically, a particular way to replace some of the technical infrastructure um, that was going to need replacing because governments were going to go away. And uh, it was a job that was fascinating, particularly because the people I was talking to were very, very clear about their view of the world, which was that within 20 years, democracy was going to go away states were going to go away. And so they needed to put in place enough stuff so that the internet would continue to work. And on one sense, that's, yeah, good, good point, practical, good guys, you've got a bit of money behind you, go and build your, you know, your, your infrastructure. Um, do I have to mention it in my blockchain? Probably I don't. <laughs> um, that's guaranteed. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, but on the other hand, it was exactly, it was just a slightly more upmarket reaction um, to the Trump voters, which was, shit's going to get bad and we had better look after our own because that's, we are already drawing up our positions for the final battle and that's how it's going to be. And, you know, in, so everybody is kind of preparing and setting up their toy soldiers for the final act of the apocalypse instead of like, fuck me, you know, we've still got 20 years, maybe we could use them to try and prevent it. You know, so like that's the, you know, so that's that really, you've got the the poor white guy and you've got the privileged white guy. And each of them is this incredibly nihilistic death drive that just says, bring it on. I want it. I want this, you know, this horrible fight to the death and we're all going to die. And it's this really Nietzschean kind of point of view. And I'm like, I don't think you live a in a world where you've really had consequences, physical violence and danger and consequences, all of your, you know, to me, like it's a, it's such a, that kind of death drive, um, whether it manifests, you know, in the Silicon Valley with some really, really cool, you know, nice press releases and venture capital <laughs> behind it, or whether it's, you know, um, guys, you know, uh, with their, with their, you know, rifles up in, in their truck behind them. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing, which is shit's going to get bad and I'm going to, and that's a really good opportunity for me to pull up the drawbridge and hopefully shoot some people like that. Is I just think there's part. something else too, though. I, I think at least on my, on my wife's family, what I've seen there is, is also a, a, a light in the tunnel. So it's not just this nihilism, but, but, Trump was the only person who made a promise that things would go would get better for them. 
right? Yeah. Hillary, for example, yeah, Hillary mm -hmm. never had a narrative which first acknowledges their tr struggles and second gives them hope for the future, right? Where Trump acknowledged their struggle and said, let's make America great again. Now that may be a total lie and totally unrealistic and totally like problematic at so many levels in terms of the delivery of that promise, but at least in terms of acknowledging their pain and promising to solve it, that kind of delivers for them. Yeah, yeah, and that's our challenge for the next century, if we are to have a next century and, and a century after that, is to figure out narratives, which are, narratives to me are just, are, are you know, things we think inside of, things we used to think with, you know, that use, in, you know, both emotion and cognition. Um, and we need to have ones that allow us to think about how we do deal with the fact that a lot of things are going to get worse. And a lot of people individually and collectively, we are, we are going to lose things that we care about and we're going to go on losing them. Um, and the world is going to look very, very different. Um, we absolutely have to figure out ways to deal with that, you know, in our politics and, and in, in the institutions that we use to address some of those problems. Um, but, you know, just, just to have it on record, and I know this isn't where you're going either, but, you know, I, I just have zero, zero tolerance of the, you know, white people are poor, therefore we should expect them to behave less well than, let's say, black people, you know, in America, where, you know, they've got some problems. They've got, you know, real structural stuff that they're dealing with day in, day out, and they're not even allowed to, you know, to frown or, you know, curse or anything about it, let alone carry, um, you know, semi-automatic weapons into state capitals. Like, you know, <laughs> there's such a double standard of behavior and expectation of who we get to feel sorry for and who, you know, we're institutionally meant to sympathize with and whose problems are real problems, you know? Like, I don't see, you know, I, we'll probably get there eventually, but so much of this stuff, like the, you know, if I was going to say like my, um, to borrow that, that horrible concept, but my red pill um, is feminism. Um, when you look around and see the amount of male violence in society and the way we live, you know, from like, you know, being able to go out for a run to dealing with the criminal justice system to, you know, all sorts of, to, to being told you're not in pain when you're in pain to, you know, it's just endemic and it's everywhere. Like, that's a problem society needs to be fixing, you know? Um, Look at what's going in Poland now. They yeah. have the largest protests since Solidarność, since the, the, the fight against communism, since the collapse of communism. And it's mostly women who are protesting, of course, because they're the ones who are legislated by a bunch of old white Catholic guys what they can and they can't do with their own bodies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, for me, like, when, you know, when you when I think about so much of the the this horrible, um, uh, you know, hard right politics and this kind of strong man politics that is just everywhere. It's from Modi. It's in it's in Venezuela. It's in, you know, it's in Brazil. It's in the U.S. It's in the U.K. It's in Poland. It's in Hungary. I mean, it's like a it's a disease. It's it's you know bigger than COVID, and um, and the one thing that unites the one thing that unites all of these, you know. You know, they manifest differently in terms of local culture, ideology, policy choices, um, paths to victory. But the one thing that unites them all is misogyny. It is the gateway drug, you know, and like once you see that, you can't unsee it. Well, let's let's talk. Let's grab that line then here for a little bit and, and, and go a little down the road. 
So one of my greatest failures on this podcast is the fact that, as someone pointed out to me, 97 per, well, 93% of my interviewees have been white dudes. And 7% have been white women. And just maybe a couple, a few months ago, I had, uh, well, let's say six months ago, I had the first woman of color. And I've been actually, uh, in the last, let's say, nine to 12 months, I've been actually doing predominantly women on my podcast. So let's say out of three interviews, two have been women and one have been a man. And it's going to take another 10 years before I probably sort of even the scales, sort to speak. And of course, my wife has been on my case for years now. But how would you explain that? You know, here I am, supposedly well-educated, well-intentioned, kind of postmodernist aware, feminist aware, you know, politically aware person. And yet in my own podcast, in my own work for the whole last decade, I've been reinforcing the status quo, at least in that sense. Yeah, well, I mean, I think so. So I did have a quick look at, you know, the kinds of people you have on. And obviously they're all people who are interested in futurism and Futurism, as we currently construe it, um, is a uh, an obsession, if you like, of you know a certain kind of well-educated, particularly educated um, white guy in uh, Western countries, um, and there, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, for some reason, you know, call it patriarchy. We seem to think that the people who have the most to say and think about the future are um, white guys. And so there's a certain cultural positioning. So the people who come to prominence, the people who get speaking gigs, you know, who, who get asked to write about the state of the nation rather than about women's issues or race issues or, you know, um, LGBTQ issues. Like white guys get to write about everybody and they get to be general and we have to be or assumed to be particular. So there's a bit of that. But, you know, I think you're the kind of guy that pushes against that stuff a little bit. So I think then there's something else, which is, I mean, a good bit, <laughs> but then there's something else, which is, a, uh, let me think, um, just the whole project of futurism is, it's a very, to me, when I, you know, think about the kinds of books that are involved and the kinds of ideas that are, are at play, it seems to be quite thin and it seems to be um, sort of, you know, people who already have a lot imagining how they could have even more. So when I think about the issues, they are stuff like, um, you know, how do we conquer death? Like, fucking clean up water first, you know? Um, <laughs> what will our transhuman existence be like? Fucking walk out the door and try and be a woman walking in an urban area and not be, you know, have your body and everything, like, catcalled and be afraid, you know, be, like, design your, your life about try, around trying not to be raped, you know? If you want to talk about transcending the body, try and live in a, in, in a female body or in a trans body, you know, for a while. So, like, these are just such... Like there's such fucking uptown issues. I just can't even, you know, sometimes. I think and I'm Plato, being a little unkind, but there's something there. Yeah, I think Plato once said that uh, philosophy is not for the hungry. And I think translating that to what you just said, it makes me think and, and it kind of explains it. It's mostly, futurism is mostly for people who have a good present, right? Right. They've kind of, and that's, that's a, an idea I got directly from what you just said. Like 
people who are pretty comfortable, pretty secure, pretty happy with where they are today, right now, in this present. Of course, there's always exception, but by large, right? And those tend to be white dudes, very well educated, working with some nice, nice tech job, making six figures or more, you know, and then they have the luxury of contemplating the future and thinking, okay, how can we go to the next level? Well, immortality would be one nice thing to have, right? How about space travel? How about, you know, uh, genetic manipulation? How about uh, all those other cool gadgets? You know, mind uploading, you know, you name it, right? So now that that kind of makes sense to me a lot more than, than before. But let's apply that thought even more so because you did a very nice application of feminism with respect to our smartphones. So tell us what feminism can enlighten us about our smartphones and our relationship with them. Sure, yeah. Um, well, slightly, um, I'll probably just slightly praise the, the piece that I wrote about, about this. And um, so it was, uh, yeah, a year ago, I, I was in Austria giving a talk about, um, anyway, giving a talk. And, and uh, it was about smartphones. And I just pulled my, um, I'm gonna, where is it? Here it is. Um, so here's my smartphone. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a, a Nokia? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That may not even pass for a smartphone. It actually it does not. It does not quite. Um, it, it does text. It does voice. It purports to do other things, but it's it's appallingly bad at them. You don't use it for anything else. And it was um it was me and Eugene Kaspersky actually were giving this this talk, and um and so so I said like you know hands up, show us hands up everyone who's a smartphone, and of course everyone puts their hand up except me. And you know it turns out Kaspersky who also has. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! But doesn't that say a lot though, Kaspersky especially too. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah, but but unlike me, who has to put up with all manner of inconvenience for not having a smartphone these days, you know, from travel booking to getting lost and finding yourself, Kaspersky has an assistant who I think is also called Maria, who um, who has a smartphone, and so she goes around with her smartphone, serving his needs the whole, you know, his his logistical needs the whole time. So he kind of gets to he's cheating. Um, externalize, yeah, the whole being trackness of a smartphone. Anyway, roundabout story. Um, so what was it? Yeah, so I just said, you know, everyone, could you please put up your hands if you um, if you have a smartphone? Yes. And I think the next thing was, can you put up your hands if you uh, trust your smartphone? And basically every hand, like loads of hands went down straight away and a couple of them kind of lingered a little bit in the air and then kind of went, no, do you know, I don't really. And they pulled it down. And in the end, it was just one guy, embarrassed looking dude in the back going, sure. Of course I trust my, what, what, what are you trying to say? <laughs> and, you know, and so that, that kind of got me thinking about, oh my God, this is like, I mean, feminism tells us what this is in that a relationship where you love somebody and you depend on them, but you don't fundamentally trust them. That is kind of the definition of an abusive relationship, you know? where that person or that object is telling you that they're looking after you, they're acting in your best interests, whilst all the time they're not, and they're doing stuff behind your back that is making you unsafe in different ways, um, and gaslighting you, you know, telling you things are fine, it's just all in your imagination. I'm, you know, you can trust me, I'm Google, I'm in your phone, it's fine. You know, or I'm your, your phone, uh, you know, phone provider. Um, I'm only using your, your data for, um, for good purposes because, you know, we have a contract. Did you read your contract? No. Um, so basically, the, yeah, when I kind of looked at 
phones, I realized that a feminist critique, our feminist analysis of our relationship with our phones show that it's it's a device that is kind of really intimate to us and that is like in the in our kind of almost the intimacy of our person. We carry it, you know, next to our flesh almost. It's everywhere. And at the same time, we don't trust it. I mean, that's wild. When you think about it, you're moving through the world with a companion the whole time. And that companion is doing stuff that you don't trust and that you kind of you kind of know is not in your interest. So basically they're the cheating on you all the time and, they're, and they're lying to you uh, because they love somebody else more than you. That's to say they're, they're sort of big tech uh, yeah. white bro masters uh, and, and, and they're, they're, they're lying to you in the sense that not only they're cheating to you, but they keep trying to reassure you that, that they, that you're number one for them, that they love you more than anyone or anything else. And yet, behind your back, they're doing exactly the opposite. Yeah. And also, I think it kind of gets at something in that, um, you know, our relationships are complicated and they're they're multivalent. You know, are we still kind of love our phones because they serve, not just they serve a purpose, but they kind of are how we interact with and with the world and with other people. And so, you know, we we both depend on them and love them. And don't trust them and that's kind of how you know abusive and problematic relationships function in that they're never all terrible you know and the guy will tell you he's gonna he's gonna this time he's gonna change and he's gonna improve himself you know this time mark zuckerberg has been on a listening tour and now he's gonna really you know change how the company works um and uh, and so i think feminism i think like like several other isms um but it's the one i i know best it exposes power relations that um, otherwise, we work very, very hard to obscure. So it does something that we do in, um, in you know, when you're writing fiction. Um, one of the one of the theories about fiction is that it's it's um, it's doing what we call defamiliarizing. It's making what is um, you know obvious and logical and rational and just like furniture. It's making the familiar seem strange. Um, and so that's that's kind of what feminism does. Is it shows us where the power is flowing from and to and shows us that, you know, things are more complicated and not here. Um, and that's we where might... we get all the insights. That's where the brilliant insights exactly come out. And, and your article did that extremely well. I'll link to it. And it brings me very nicely to my next step here in our conversation, which is the importance of power and knowledge. And and I'm not even sure if I took these from this particular article or from some, some other one, because I read like so many of yours in the last two or three days. But in one place, you say that if knowledge is indeed power, then in the question we should ask is, in which direction is it flowing? And the answer is obviously away from us. And that's true with respect to our phones, but it's also true with respect to our uh, all of our other tech stuff, like social media, for example, right? And And then people particularly who are concerned with, let's say, privacy, you're th you're, what you're saying is that when thinking about privacy, we shouldn't think so much about secrets, but again, we should think more about power, right? Who has it, who is challenged, who is reinforced, who gets more power from this kind of relationship or this kind of a setup of technological or, or other kind. And that's where feminism in your analysis gives us brilliant insights that, that I believe are very much uh, worth paying attention to you, which is why I've become a fan of your blog and I'm going to keep reading it now. I find it very insightful. Um, do you want to add anything to that? Um, I, mm, let me think. Well, 
Yeah, I think, I, I guess just to say briefly that a lot of the, maybe the first 10 or, you know, even 15 years of my career in tech policy, we used to talk about privacy and data privacy uh, a lot, certainly in the context of European data protection law. Um, and over time, it became apparent to me that that wasn't enough. And I think the new regulations coming out of, of Brussels are trying to also to, to kind of wrestle with the fact that it's not enough to have privacy. Um, you need autonomy. This is, it's not just about, there's a private sphere and there's a public sphere. And, you know, we have to manage our relationship as we go back and forth between those two things throughout the day and over the course of our lives. But more that data flowing away from us takes power away from us um, in ways that we don't even know for a long time. Um, you know, so a surveilled city where you, like the one I live in at the moment, London, um, is is a city where when you go to a protest, your face will be captured and it will be added to a database. And a lot of people will say, well, you've, you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. But they have not really understood or thought very deeply about how information is used against people in different contexts later on in their lives. So I guess it's just to say that, yeah, privacy isn't enough. Um, it's, it's not just about putting data in particular boxes and keeping it there, but it's about really, um, really fluidly and, um, you know, thinking of how information changes through time and how it forecloses possibilities for us. Yeah, and a, and a great, um, another example of yours, uh, of your articles that comes to my mind, and a great example of how that works is the one about how China is exporting autocracy around the world. And it's exactly dead on on this topic about privacy and surveillance uh, and so on. And how uh, countries in the third world, like Uganda, for example, in Africa, are literally buying uh, sort of like ready to go uh, Chinese surveillance autocracy, sort of autocracy in a box, if, if I may. Can yeah, you tell us yeah. a little more about how that works and why is it being so successful in 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 the third world? Yeah, sure. So straight off, um, I'm going to say I'm I've got one point of sadness about that article, and here is a thing that like I. Um, it, this is really self-serving, but I kind of think sometimes when you're writing a piece, and mostly you don't write the headline, but you know you can, you can suggest a couple of them. Um, I increasingly I try to like write suggest a headline that just has the whole piece in a box, like in like six lines, you know. And this one came to me, and it was just like boom. This one is called autocracy as a service. Like guys, that's what the piece should be called. Um, and my normal editor was actually moving away from. Um, um, I think had perhaps uh, left Medium already at that time. And so I got this like really kind of painful and, and protracted headline. So so sorry about that. But it's just like sometimes, you know, the piece will just sell itself. Autocracy as a service. Like, you know, that's I agree just, completely you know, with you. Already, yeah, you know? it's it's a much so anyway, better so title. Much better, right? Much better. <laughs> I'm not gonna be the first writer to complain about, about what the headline ended up being, but but I do think they missed a beat there. Anyway, so yeah, the deal is so I was in a um, small Gulf state uh, around this time last year, um, doing um, a consulting job for for a, a nonprofit, and um, just so just happened to be having dinner with the um, head of the communications regulator in that country, and I had been thinking about this whole China thing for quite some time. The fact that we, you know, we know that through um, by helping to set regulations at the the um, 
the UN level um, that sort of make it easier to do procurement that buys China's products and and all the way to, all the way kind of up and down the stack from selling the equipment to writing the model laws to training the sensors to um, to to even you know providing um, Belt and Road Initiative loans for countries to buy China's kit at the national infrastructure level. Like China is just answering a call um, that is going out and that is being ignored. And so I said to this this asked this guy, so you know, are you what's your what's your take on on um, China? Like, have they have they made an offering to you? Or are they um, you know are they being helpful to you? Um, because I was there to kind of do the human rightsy thing. You know, of let's do cybersecurity, but do it in a way that doesn't just concentrate power into the state and help us do surveillance and censorship. And this guy was, you know, open to that message. But he said, "Look, the Chinese listen to us. Like, they not only listen to us, but they know that we have, you know, certain needs. Like my minister is on to me saying, we've got to do this 5G thing. I don't know what 5G is, but it sounds really important, and we've got to do it so that we're kind of, you know, because countries are really into league tables. Governments are, you know, really watch what other governments are doing, especially in the Arab League, and um, or you know, or any regional um, uh, intergovernmental organization. And he said, you know, I don't want to buy this kit, um, but it's um, it's serving a need and it answers questions that we have, and the, the West isn't doing that for us. You know, you go back 10 years to, say, the Hillary Clinton State Department, um, which for its various and many sins was still presenting a view of technology and the Internet that said, here's the Internet. It is going to solve some of your problems. Um, It's going to help you do democracy because that was their big push at the time. But also it's going to help you, you know, drive up living standards in your country. It's going to help you figure out what to do with all of those um, semi-educated 23-year-old men that you have who will otherwise go and be radicalized. Like it's going to give them jobs where they get to put on a shirt in the morning and earn a reasonable wage. Um, You know, the internet, like, so they had kind of a story about the internet, what it was going to do, and also uh, a a pitch and kind of the companies behind them that said, it's going to help you out. Then the Arab Spring came and, um, you know, the, the the other side of that pitch became apparent to various authoritarian countries and it was no longer as, um, as attractive. Another example of exactly that kind of dynamic that you're talking about here, how uh, third world countries are a lot more receptive uh, and sort of idealistic uh, about the way they can take and utilize technology for their betterment is uh, the case of uh, Facebook as, a, as an internet uh, provider. Tell us a, a little bit about uh, that piece that you wrote there about why the internet should be a lot more than Facebook. Because as we know, Facebook has a program in a number of other countries with some notable exceptions. By the way, India did a research on that and very notably decided to abstain. So India basically had the guts to turn down Facebook, which good for them good on them for that but most other places didn't and and some of the most notable examples that you give in your piece are things like uh, places like the philippines and myanmar perhaps yeah so and i I know you've talked about the the myanmar you know thing as well um and the genocide there and and the role of of social media particularly facebook in in helping foment that um so the deal is that, that Facebook.org is one of, you know, a couple of different companies offerings to uh, mostly lower, um, least developed countries and middle income countries. Um, so, you know, anything all the way from, uh, um, let's say, uh, 
um, a Lesotho, you know, a tiny little landlocked country with very little infrastructure, um, and uh, to a Brazil, which is a very large and to some extent wealthy middle-income country. And all of those countries have a problem. And that problem is how do we roll out internet infrastructure throughout our entire country? Um, you know, Lesotho is incredibly mountainous and Brazil is incredibly large. So it's a big, pro like it's a big challenge. And they, um, yeah, for, I won't even go into the whole telecoms kind of history, but for, for various reasons, you know, Facebook uh, in particular has come along to those countries and said, um, we're going to do a deal with your biggest mobile phone provider because a lot of countries have kind of leapfrogged um, into mobile phone um, internet provision. And uh, we'll do a thing called Facebook Zero where we will basically subsidize the mobile phone provider to so that when customers go onto facebook.com, um, all of that traffic will be free to the customer. And so, so what it means on the one hand, if you're a minister of communications and Facebook is coming along with their lobbyist, you know, um, and Google and all of the, you know, several of those companies have somewhat similar offers, but, and they say, look, we're going to give you basically free internet rolled out to your entire population of people. Um, you're not going to say no to that. Um, the telco is not going to say no because they get a nice fat subsidy. Um, Facebook is delighted because now it means they get a whole new world of users. And I guess the only people who lose, so who are the losers? Because so much of what we do elides who's actually losing out here. Um, who's the, where's the dog that didn't bark? And it means that people will turn on their mobile phone, um, perhaps slightly more sophisticated than, than this particular Nokia, not quite smartphone that I have. Um, and they go straight to Facebook and all of their messaging to everybody else, you know, that they write to is through Facebook. And um, all of their news comes from Facebook in the countries that have used this. Um, you find that very, very quickly you go from, you know, very quickly achieve huge figures like 70, even 90% of people getting their news through Facebook. Um, and so for the first couple of years, probably all goes well. And then very soon you find out that you're, you know, you're a Philippines and Philippi the Philippines has a remarkably high, almost saturation level of Facebook um, use because of this free offer. Um, and anyway, you find out very quickly that um, everybody getting their news through Facebook is actually not such a good thing because you've externalized the cost of that. And what is the cost? The cost is, is of course, all the political division, um, the propaganda, the, um, you know, this before you know it, basically the hollowing out of your ability as a state to function because people no longer believe in, um, you know, in science, they no longer believe in any kind of mainstream media. Um, suddenly what looked like a fantastic free offer becomes uh, almost like a, it, I mean, it's almost like a fairy tale poison, you know. It's like a toxic it, pill. Yeah, it's a toxic pill. Um, so where were we going with this? Um, and then Duerte moves into that vacuum that's created after the devastation. And, 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 and then you have Facebook basically powering a genocide, like in Myanmar, for example, right, against the Rohingya minority. Uh, but what do you say to people from Facebook who say, well, we didn't do that, we didn't know about it, uh, we're just a provider, we're just a platform, what people use us for and do with us is up to them, that's not our responsibility. How do you address that issue? On the specific instance, I think The New Yorker and others have done some very good reporting that Facebook did not um, have enough people on the ground who actually spoke the languages um, in, in Myanmar. 
and had been told and had been alerted and should have acted sooner and did not. And that's on them. That is absolutely on them. Um, to the broader point, um, I would say that they are running a platform. It's technology. Technology has certain affordances. And um, it is a fact that um, lies and hatred make more money than, um, than the truth does on those platforms. They amplify certain kind of messages and certain kind of kind of sub narratives that are not even proper um, narratives. And so absolutely it is on them. But I think the broader point I, that I, I remember trying to make in that article about, you know, Facebook is, is not the internet was um, a bit broader than Facebook, but it was that, so the internet was developed, um, you know, in, it's, it's, it's an open source set of technologies and um, based on protocols and standards that allow us to put different building blocks together. And uh, basically are, it's kind of more like a horizontal network. Um, that, and the whole point of it is, you know, all you have to do to be part of the internet is basically use, um, you know, use HTTP. Like that, that's it. You know, you can you can get yourself a, a an IP number or an IPv6 number. We won't go to that, but you can. It's you basically all you have to do to be part of the internet is to um, use some completely publicly available technical protocols, and that's why the internet grew. Every country was able to do it, and it's kind of gone from that, which is we call it kind of the topology of the internet, the kind of the physical layout, which is kind of, you know, slightly bumpy, but more or less kind of a layer that went around the world. And now it's been kind of gathered together into these skyscrapers, these silos of um, of a kind of hierarchical organization that is, that say a Google is pulling it into itself, every single layer of the internet that previously was available for other companies to do and other companies to provide and interact with it different different levels and in different ways and build different things. Increasingly, um, you know, Google provides everything from DNS resolution to, um, you know, to hosting, to content distribution networks. It has its own ones, literally to, to sub-oceanic cables. So in some sense, um, you don't have to be a competition economist or a purist to kind of realize that if the stuff that used to be kind of distributed throughout the technical ecosystem is now concentrated in a very hierarchical um, way under business units and for particular, you know, for very specific profit motives of, of very geographically confined um, uh, tax-based organizations. That is a very different net network topology to what the internet was designed to do. And you don't have to be a technological purist to worry about this because you just realize, hang on a second, like if I'm a small company um, in India and I'm wanting to be, you know, to do, um, uh, basically if I'm a bright young guy or woman um, in India and I want to do technology stuff and make money, am I going to um, build out new um, stuff on the internet using open standards and protocols? Or am I going to design an app that is going to go into the Apple App Store and that is going to make 0.001 cents um, per download um, for 100,000 downloads every week? Of course, I'm going to pick the latter. So because we kind of siloed everything into these um, really vertically integrated uh, stacks, um, it means that anyone who wants to do internet stuff has to be part of them. And it means that they have to use proprietary protocols. They have to obey the rules, often content rules, of the companies that own them. And, and, and the, whole, the entire possibilities of what we can do with the internet for the next generation are going away. So, you know, so, uh, some people that I work with call this climate change for the internet because it's like 
some of the a lot of the choices that we have made in this generation to consolidate and vertically integrate are completely closing the door on the possibility to make genuinely disruptive new stuff with the technological building blocks of the internet. So that's kind of broadly what that piece was about, was just that, you know, if the internet to you is just facebook.com, like if that's all it is, and it's like building an app to sell in the Apple uh, app store, like you are only seeing the, it's like, I don't know, it's like, you know, like getting Replacing the gatekeepers of old with the gatekeepers of new. You know, yeah, right? exactly. So we had like, let's say, three or four major networks in, let's say, the United States back in the day, the good old dates, and three or four major daily newspapers and magazines and stuff. And you had to go through those gatekeepers sort of to get a message out. Then sort of we had the cyberpunks who sort of idealized the internet as this free sort of beyond the, the control of the space, uh, of the state space where anything was possible uh, for them and for anyone else to go. Uh, and now we're kind of converging and, and, you know, there were new sort of ideas and people and corporations that grew into that space, which kind of destroyed or took all the power away from the old gatekeepers. But now the irony is that they're becoming the new gatekeepers and it's kind of an oligopolistic situation where let's say four or five of them, big tech, are basically what, 80, 90% of all traffic on the internet today. So basically, we're not into that sort of like decentralized free competition and like all ideas are equal situation that the cyberpunks dreamed of. But now we're again in that situation where you have to fight the men to be able to get a message out or you have to play by their rules on their platforms that they own and they can kick you out anytime they decide, you know, for whatever reason you're inconvenient or, you know, inappropriate for them. That's right. And, you know, Tim Wu um, is very good on how, you know, communications industries consolidate over time. We've seen it in, in several, several others over the last generation. This stuff happens. It happens unless you fight against it and unless you do competition law in such a way as to not just go, oh, does this make internet more expensive for people or does it make it less expensive for people? Like if that's the only question that a competition regulator is asking, of course, it's going to look fine to them. So, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of been around the block with this a few times. And, you know, the, the sad irony is that one of the creators of the PCPI, what is it, PCPI ITP <laughs> protocol, Vint Cerf, the, one of the so-called fathers of the internet now works for Google. So I tried to get him on my podcast, you know, and we were going to discuss a variety of issues, one of which was this. Uh, and he was very positive about the whole idea. And then we had to kind of go through a third person to approve through my sort of like uh, questions and topics of discussion and things like that. Basically, we had to kind of get an approval by Google PR or something. And I told him straight up, you know, I never send out my questions before the actual podcast for anyone. You know, I love what Vint Cerf did for, for us and for the internet. And it is it like the, the underlying protocol is free and in the public domain because of him and people like him. But I, I don't do exceptions for anyone. And you know, the reason is I want to be authentic and I want to be honest and I want to get the original first authentic uh, reaction of people when I give them the, the, 
uh, the question. And also, I want to be genuine. I want to be honest. Um, and, and that was a problem. And yeah. the interview never happened. Right? Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. So, so, and that was very disappointing for me because, on the one hand, he did this pioneering work, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago. And on the other hand, now he's kind of, I don't want to call him a sellout, but now he's a Google man. And, yeah, and so they gonna, can decide yeah. where and when he could or he should engage. And that yeah. to me is, is regress, it's not progress, both for him. In, in a personal sense, he's a less free man in, as far as I can tell. And of course, who am I to say Vince Cerf is less free man? He probably gets paid, you know, a quarter million dollars, at least if not half a million a year. Google takes him around everywhere. So in some ways, he's a freer man probably than before. But in my world, he's a less free man if he has to get approval by someone else and they can effectively bar him from coming to my show or do things that he might find interesting, though challenging. Yeah, I was um I was at a thing with him in Bologna two years ago, and um we yeah we we were dealing with you know the, the whole arguments about disinformation and the platforms and the fact that the technology afford the affordances really push um you know hard right content much more easily, and he was um very much taking the view that this was kind of a, a, a an invitation only event, but um you know his he was there as the Google person that. And well, you know, platforms are platforms and people can use them in the way they use them. And it's not really our fault that bad things happen. Um, and um, it's, you know, I've kind of met him at various times over the years because he was the chair of ICANN when I first went to work for it. Um, and I have huge respect for him um, uh, for what he's achieved. But I think, you know, at Google, um, he's, he's a Google person. I think they let him do space stuff and that he's really interested in that. And it's very cool space internet, you know, not gonna lie. Sure. It's, it's stuff. Um, but you know, you're, the open internet is not what's happening at Google. Um, it's yeah. you know Google is is um, assuming the internet standards and protocol. Um, Space stuff is a diversion of the real issues, you know. And unfortunately, yeah. and and I'll disappoint probably ninety percent of my audience by saying this, but I'm sure they have noticed this. You know, I started as a singularity fanboy fifteen years ago. And probably slowly over time, you know, but especially in the last, let's say, five, six years, the singularity has become almost of a side issue, a side issue on my show. You know, it's an important issue how we deal with AI, but it's not the primary issue that we're contending today with as a civilization, in my opinion. We're not there yet anyway. I don't think we're coming to that point within the next decade at all. We have much bigger and much more urgent pressing problems we have to resolve before we deal with it. So in a way, just like the space internet is a diversion of the real internet, and so they're allowing him freedom to talk on that or deal with that and not to deal with the real issues. Like, likewise, I've shifted my attention a lot less of away from the singularity and more on the, on the bigger technological issues and, and ethics and how that comes into play. Yeah. It's um, yeah. It's funny they our visions of the future as I guess they've gotten perhaps darker. They've also got a bit more realistic, and but I think it's a good thing because you know the the way we think about the future. I think at the moment is is much more. Um, I think a lot of early futurist thinking was 
really only thought about the past and thought about history in very, very functional ways. And, you know, history almost as like a Marxian, um, you know, a history machine that was going to drive, had brought us from, it was kind of like a, almost a deracinated, like a thing that wasn't really part of humans, but it was like a machine and we could like learn how the machine worked and the machine was going to go in this way. And some of us were going to be driving the machine and that was going to be really cool. Um, and, and I think, you know, as more, people have come to the fore, um, different groups in terms of having an alternative vision of the present, let alone the future. Um, I think the future is becoming kind of knottier and grittier and less kind of super shiny and fanboy, but also really much more interesting. You know, it's broader and it's deeper. It's gnarly. Yeah, and that's the good news in the bad news. So the future is not what it used to be. It's not as shiny and as utopian and it surely is not abundance and it surely is not, uh, you know, better than we think, but it could be, or at least parts of it could be. But it all depends on whether we actually have the guts to face the problems we're having to face today and whether we master, you know, sort of the the unity and, 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 and the long-term sort of pain, if you will, to get long-term gain uh, to be able to get to any such future. Right, and it's not going to be just so easy and sort of happen on its own, as as if it was a, a point on Ray Kurzweilian, you know, extrapolation. It's not going to be like that. It's going to take a lot more blood, sweat, and tears, and and effort, and 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 probably people dying before we get get there, if we ever get in in any shape or form, maybe in some realm or another. Yeah, and I think the way we think about we is changing and you know both horizontally and vertically in terms of like the way we think about now who matter and who count that's a much much more um you know it's a different and more diverse group of people it's still not all the way there but it, it definitely is a much different and the we who we think about in the future that's also changing because you know i think i like the one thing i, I spent a lot of time thinking about a couple of years ago when I wrote those pieces about how to cope with the end of the world um, was really about kind of decentering the we, the us, like who is the we we think gets to see the end of this story? Because, you know, newsflash, um, I'm 48 and you're a couple of years, a few years younger than me, but we are not going to be around to um, see the next century. And, and it's, we are not the protagonists of this story. And we don't have to see this, this story end, you know, we just have to like pass the ball forward so that enough options are open for another uh, other people. Like I really think how, how we think about the future has to change in terms of, you know, like novels, you know, and I write, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a novel writer and reader, um, but like the idea of it being about one protagonist and being driven by conflict and, you know, and there being a conclusion that like ties up all the neat ends, like that is not how we can think about the future. Like we have to decenter ourselves and understand the future of this planet is not also being decided in London or in Toronto or in San Francisco. You know, it's being decided in Karachi and Mumbai and, and, and these cities as well. You know, it's, it's just like we need to just get over ourselves in terms of how we think about if we don't do well the world can't do well. That's nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know, that, that kind of captures kind of my my whole motivation for what I do for the last decade or so. Uh, and, and, and to continue that point about, 
you know, Karachi and other places, I had a conversation. One of the reasons why, you know, I'm a lot more concerned about the future than I ever was, was that I went for a lunch with, uh, with a guy who, who spent probably 30 years, if not 40 years, sort of living in different places in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, he's, a, he's an academic uh, originally from Algeria, who is a professor here at the University in Toronto, but basically spent most of his life in sub-Saharan Africa and uh, the Arab world. Uh, and he, he says that it's worse than ever. And the way he and the future looks worse than ever for him. And the the reason why he says that is the way that that he defines it is that he, he sees now more and more twenty or twenty five year olds than ever before in his life who are without direction and who are pissed off, who don't see a prospect uh, for their life. Uh, except for if they get on a boat and get to Europe or something like that, and who who really have a narrative that that is not a good or a positive narrative with a light in the tunnel, uh, and, and and that, in his view, is going to create that combustion that can potentially destroy the future not only for them, which they kind of are struggling with having a future. But even for us who are having a good future, relatively speaking, or are used to having a good good future up until our recent past, uh, because they would they would be the majority in twenty or thirty years. You know, the biggest growth uh, around twenty fifty would come from sub-Saharan Africa. There will be one point two billion people living in sub-Saharan Africa around twenty fifty, and most of them would be very young people. Uh, so. Obviously, they can't all come to Europe. Uh, so if they don't have a prospect or a story that gives them a reason to stay there and helps them believe that they can have a good life there and gives them a reason for, for living and, and sort of doing something, then uh, the chances are they'll be radicalized. And that was his his major concern. And, and he's been there again, as I said, for 30 or 40 years. And he says it used to be much better just like you know, ten or twenty years ago, when younger people actually believed they can be better off there while staying in their own countries, now that's kind of impossible. And if you watch the news, even places like uh, successful, relatively successful places like Ethiopia, for example, are now in a situation of civil war. For example, right. Uh, not to mention, you know, Syria and Yemen are worse than ever. And of course, those are the countries with the youngest population. The Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa and South, South sort of Western Asia. China is getting old just as much as we are getting old. Japan is already old, right? So, so the future literally belongs to those people and, and they're kind of pissed off and, and upset and they surely don't get the narrative of the future is better than you think. They surely don't get the narrative, the better angels of our nature, <laughs> and that we've had it better than ever. We have it better than we ever had, right? They don't get that. And, and that's kind of that dangerous disconnect between what Silicon Valley is pushing to, towards us. And, and that's why I think people in actually in Silicon Valley were so shocked and surprised when Trump came to power in a way, because... They totally believe their own Kuwait 
and they were shocked to discover that even people in the United States don't believe that. On a mass scale, people don't believe that. Yeah. The, um, it's, yeah, the, the Kool-Aid is, is really something else because, you know, when I travel around, um, obviously not this year so much, but, you know, various um, Middle Eastern or African countries doing tech policy stuff, um, a lot of the people I meet are incredibly enthusiastic and positive because they really see technology, you know, be it like doing a, you know, a, a distributed learning course in, you know, Microsoft um, programming languages or whatever, um, or just being able to write apps as incredibly positive and liberatory for them. Um, but a lot of the kind of the middle-aged people, I think that I come across, and you know, the, like it, it's a selection bias. I'm meeting people who are, you know, in the technology incubator or, you know, working for the minister or, you know, so, you know, or, or who are the local lobbyists. The elite, basically, yeah. who can afford yeah. to travel yeah. and get out of country and all that stuff. Absolutely. So, you know, they've got a different view on it, but um, I was looking at my bookshelf trying to see if, I, yeah, I can't, can't, set my eyes on it there's a book called the age of anger um which was written kind of about uh two or three years ago by a uh i think a uk author uk and or pakistan and it's it's basically about that kind of global civil war the idea of angry young men angry young men everywhere and how many of them there are and how they will not be happy and and i get it and i think it's a really important um demographic to worry about but i cannot help but also you know wonder why we never think about the, you know, the angry young women or hurt young women, you know, we're so worried, you know, you know, if, if you're a hist historian of like 19th century Europe, you're worried about, you know, nationalism and the young Turks. And, you know, it was bad to, to teach young men to read because now they all want jobs and now they can't get jobs. And so now they're in nationalist separatist movements against, you know, the Austro-Hungarian empire or whoever it is, or the, the Ottoman empire. Um, like the angry young men are, are a political force that we worry about and cater to so much more than the hurt young women. And I just, they're invisible to us. You know, they're invisible. And it just, it just always, you know, and I get the point that you're making and I worry about that too. Um, but always in these conversations, um, I just feel like, where are the women? Why don't we care what's well, happened? Well, I'm not excusing that, but one way to rationalize the, the focus on young men because is because men that... do violence, men do damage. Exactly, exactly. Right? We tend to live out our anger and frustration a lot more violently on a mass scale than women tend to do. <laughs> so, so in that no. sense, it's, yeah. it's legitimate and to some like, degree. And how is pandering to that working out for us as a species? That's a good point, yeah. Not That's well. a good point. So that, yeah, I don't, I don't know where the conversation goes from that particular point because I don't have big answers to it, but I just, I'm always thinking about who are we not looking at here when we're, when our, we're all convinced that the problem is over here and they're like but there are all those people over there who aren't saying anything but you know there's a lot of value of asking those questions and that's precisely what's the the kind of the goal of my podcast uh and that's why i say it's a symposium a, a socratic style of symposium where people come to have a conversation in a very informal atmosphere because a symposium in ancient greece was basically a drinking party people went to have drinks to eat to have fun, to listen to music while discussing important topics like war, peace, friendship, love, poetry, piety, piety religion, ethics, aesthetics, beauty, uh, friendship, uh, death, 
uh, law, religion, you name it. And the idea was that maybe you live drunk at the end of the party, but hopefully with a new insight at the end of the day, or at least a new question to ask. And that, I believe, creates little cracks and chinks in the armor of the of the Silicon Valley narrative, because that kind of idea is becoming almost like a religion in certain circles, that the future is better than we think, that it's just going to be great, just let it, you know, run its course. Uh, mm. and, and the stress is on sort of almost like passive, uh, pious and, and religious uh, passivity of letting the godness of technology unfold itself to its new coming. And even yesterday, I was arguing with someone on Facebook about they wrote something like uh, technology is God or something like that in this whole article. And and a few years ago, I, I had a piece called Technology is Not Enough. And basically, the point was technology would not save us from human stupidity. Um, and, and so I reposted it there. But it sure will do a great job in amplifying it. So. <laughs> exactly. That that goes to my other metaphor, which uh, I, I've come to use, and that's the idea that, uh, and I believe I kind of created that, but anyway, it's the idea of the magnifying mirror. Uh, you see, technology is a mirror because it doesn't have an essence of its own, but it merely takes on the essence that we give it. But oh my it's God, not... you know what? Sorry, I'm having a slightly out-of-body experience because that is exactly what Vint Cerf said on that panel in Bologna two years ago. Now I remember it. Um, yeah, he said uh, technology is just, a, is just a mirror. It just reflects back to us who we are. And, um, and I remember making the argument, which you're not doing here, which is a different thing, me saying, well, actually, no, technology has affordances and these affordances that you have are destroying democracy. And the fact that there's only one of you or three of you and you all have the same business model and it's advertising, that is bringing down democracy. And he got really testy about it. Um, he, he, no, I like that because it may help me even uh, improve on that. But I'm, I'm just, I've been using this metaphor now for, for nine or 10 years. And you know, the funny thing is that some of the things that I've written somehow end up I hear in all kinds of weird places. Uh, just let me give you an example. For example, I interviewed the, one of the founders of Skype, Jan Tallinn, who is this big guy on AI. I don't know if you've ever crossed paths with him. Anyway, and he's an engineering guy. And just like all great engineers, uh, his thing was like uh, something like, well, science is the engine uh, of well, Michio Kaku said science is the engine of prosperity, but but uh, Jan Tallinn was saying something like uh, the most important thing is for us to 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 create a good engine, to create a good rocket, uh, and that's where science is needed, right? Or physics, or something like that. And my response to that was like, no, actually, the most important thing is which way are you going to point the rocket towards, right? Yeah. And that's not a scientific decision; that's an ethical decision because you can point that rocket towards Mars or the moon, or you can point it towards your neighbor. And in both in both cases, you can have the best possible science. And in one case, you can end up destroying the world. In the other case, you can may end up discovering a new one. And, and the only difference is not the science. The only difference is the ethics. So while science may be the engine of that rocket, uh, right? The more important thing is the ethics because ethics gives you the direction. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then the funny part. 
The yeah. funny part is that then he went to a conference somewhere and then he used the whole spiel from me. And I was like, holy cow, that's pretty good. Like, I don't care. I didn't get a credit or anything. That's fine. But I'm happy if it has an impact. So now I'm curious about when and, and I want to see the chronology of Vintsurf because I've been using that for a decade now. Mm. So I, I'm curious how Vintsurf came up with this. But my point is actually even more so uh, the important part is that my point is even more so alongside of what you're saying rather than what he's arguing. Because yeah. my point is that right now the narrative is all about let's polish the mirror. Let's make the best mirror. And my yeah. argument is, well, the mirror may be important, but the more important is the is us. Because we are the ones who emit and create the image that's being reflected. So instead of focusing on polishing the mirror, why don't we focus on polishing ourselves, improving ourselves, deciding what is the image we want to project in the first place? Who do we want to be to be reflected and magnified by technology? And if we miss that, then it's only going to be garbage in, garbage out. Because if we are a monster that destroys the world, magnified by technology... That's a suicidal situation, which we're kind of living in right now in many ways, right? With species extinction and collapse and soil erosion and climate change and a bunch of other things, nuclear weapons, you know the list. So, but but you still had some very useful tweaks. So walk me, walk me through that because I'm very curious here. Walk me to the part where you don't disagree with because that's where I can learn the most. Um, so, well, I... Actually, I'm not quite. Yeah, sorry, I'm slightly lost the track here because. Well, you had a, an argument with Vint about yeah. him saying that technology is a mirror, and you saying no, actually it does have certain predispositions and stuff like that, which can damage and do damage democracy, for example. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, it was kind of a, an, an unsatisfying conversation, really, because. Um, you know, after I and uh, another woman on the panel pointed out that technology has a, has a certain affordances that are because of the chosen, um, you know, and historically contingent business model of, of advertising um, that we're currently using to power the internet, um, that the amplification of certain messages was, you know, was was a direct consequence of of Google and Facebook and those those companies, and and unfortunately, um, Vince, to be honest, just didn't want to hear it and got quite testy and, and kind of. Breezed, breezed past it all, which is fine. It's that's that's his um, that's his choice. Um, but uh, it's it's uh, you know, there's a very particular narrative of the present and of the future that is being told by those tech companies, and and I think they are in crisis at the moment because it is, you know, so abundantly clear that they are not improving the world or making the world a better place or you know doing all of those living out all of those slogans those you know incredibly banal slogans frankly um, that you know are their sort of foundation myths um, you know that they are actually helping to make the world an objectively worse place um, and and some of the worst things that they've done have been in countries that were not their their own countries um, and you know eventually over time those chickens are coming home to roost so I think they are in crisis because they're realizing that their future and the future, they're kind of totalizing view of the world where more and more of the world is assumed into the Borg that is Google, you know, our health systems in this country, in the UK, um, they're trying to basically, you know, colonize the health system um, and they're being given every help to do so um, by, you know, the government, which is both inept and corrupt. So, 
And yet they are not winning hearts and minds. They're not winning the war of narratives. You know, they they know that they're living in a world where they're no longer the good guys. And, you know, I've, I've gone to things in Brussels in the, in the past couple of years where um, the Google lobbyists are basically treated and acting a bit like um, tobacco lobbyists. Like they're sort of the bad guys in the room a lot of the time. Um, and they've been used to being the good guys. You know, That's they've very been used to, to being That's very, that I makes mean. me so happy, I can't tell you. <laughs> well, a little, you know, a little social discomfort is, is a small price to pay for um, for the, the abundant uh, rewards of those jobs. Because, you, know? you know, it's like a little revenge for me. I was there in 2011 visiting Google and Cisco, and I was the asshole always asking some stupid questions that made people not want to have me back. So, for example, I was asking about the, the, uh, the Wi-Fi gate, Uh, in so we imagine this. So we're in Google visiting at sort of like very high end VP level, and you know it's like oh we're so it's kind of like oh we're so amazing and this and that. And then some bald idiot like me gets up and and says something like what about Wi-Fi gate, and and the answer to that is like oh that was just a couple of engineers who didn't know what they're doing and just without asking anybody put like a, a little snooper on a single car. And I was like, hold on a second, that happened in Korea in a bunch of places, happened in the United States, happened in Europe, happened in a bunch of other places. So I'm I'm counting at least like 40 cars. How is that a couple of engineers? You know, that sounds to me more like a process that's like policy-oriented uh, process that's like delineated from up top, right? And then what happens the next time is like, oh, we're going to go to Google. Well, they're not too excited to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the same happened with Cisco. We go to Cisco and uh, you know, I have the 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 stupidity to get up and ask about the great uh, firewall of China and how leaked Cisco documents uh were basically discussing about as a great business opportunity where Cisco can help China built the, the because those were leaked sort of let's say 2008 2009 and that was referring to about four or five years before that when the chinese were literally setting up the foundation for the great firewall of china and cisco was looking for new markets and way to expand and they didn't feel uh any conscious uh contradictions or any other issues of like making the pitch to china about how they can help them with that in any way that the chinese would require Uh, yeah. So it didn't make me very popular and 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 welcome guest. No, it, it does not. And it's strange, like just on the kind of slightly anthropological level, um, those the big the big tech lobbyists are incredibly thin skinned and touchy and you know very easily hurt. And I think it's because they genuinely seem to believe in what they're doing, which I guess is 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 touching and sweet on some levels um but um you know when i compare them to um you know really badass lobbyists i have dealt with in my time um intellectual property rights and copyright um you know american copyright lobbyists i mean those are those are some fucking bad boys like and you know and they play dirty and they really and they try and get you fired and they're all sorts of like awful awful and you had to deal with those in icon oh yeah 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 the icon was one of their one of their favorite play 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 pens But at the end of the day, you go to the bar and one of them will kind of, you know, give you, raise an eyebrow and go, come on. And I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, mine's a beer. And you can like, you can have a beer with them. 
Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing in the sense that it sort of says it's all just a game. But at the human level, they're kind of able to laugh at themselves and see themselves in a way that, you know, the the tech lobbyists are, they they feel more like ideologues or religious extremists um, or, you know, that they have genuinely taken inculcated um, a particular view of the world that any threat to that is has they have an absolutely violent antibody reaction to and can't deal with. So it's funny, you know, it's been kind of strange watching them evolve into people who are kind of lionized and at the center of the conversation everywhere to, um, you know, still very much at the center of the conversation, but they're now sort of having to play a defensive game and they're on the back foot and they are having a, a harder time trying to sell their vision of the future, which is a vision in which more and more of our lives and the roles of the state and public goods are kind of sucked into these enormous vertical blocks and stacks that they inhabit. Um, you know, they're having a hard time selling that is a good thing that we should all want. They're still selling it and they are still absolutely succeeding. You know, I, I don't want to give anyone hope but they're somewhat less popular and they seem and that seems to really hurt them. But that's giving me so much hope because the first step to change is changing the narrative. And if the narrative is starting to change, then we hope we 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 can have real hope that there will be other changes following the narrative change, right? And both of, of us have have thought about the importance of stories and the importance of narrative. Uh, for some time, both of us are working on sort of book projects on on this. Uh, both of us are aware that there's this kind of vacuum that happened after the terribly idiotic, let's say, if we're nice to him, misguided end of history hypothesis that Francis Fukuyama had uh, in the '90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, because for him, you see. We've reached the pinnacle of evolution, so we're not only uh, the best that we have been, we are the best that our society could ever possibly be. So it's the end of history, right? And that idea has been proven to be patently false for the last 20 years. And the problem is now that capitalism as an idea is kind of collapsing and it's like literally cracking everywhere and we are not having a narrative that can unite us towards that we-ness that you're talking about, that we. Uh, and, and there's no single narrative, unfortunately, so far that I can see that can be that new foundation that can sort of tell us who we are, where we're coming from, but also give us a guidance towards where we're going in this 21st century. Yeah, well... I will say in Fukuyama's defense that that I think he has sort of, in a strange way, been vindicated by history um, in that, well, his take was not that, you know, we've reached some pinnacle of achievement and that that we're all just going to coast here and more of the world is going to get rich and be Western liberal democracies, but more like there is sort of a neo, you know, his, his idea that there's a neoliberal consensus that almost transcends politics um, and that is infected both the left and the right has actually been borne out, um, you know, in that, you know, most of our countries that are still democracies are sort of, um, you know, fairly, there, there's kind of a lack of, um, what's the word, and um, there's a certain inevitability narrative about where we are, and that there are only a narrow stream of sensible policies that we can have. I mean, I think he's actually been quite, you know, correct. But, but the problem with that is the idea that, you know, what we need is not so much the state and the different, you know, derivatives but we need the capitalist neoliberal system and as long as that underlining system works 
everything else will be fine because that's the pinnacle of evolution for him. And the offshoot of that are other types of misguided theories which are derivative of his, which is, let's say, the so-called McDonald's theory of peace, right? Which is entirely derived from Fukuyama's, right? So the idea is as long as capitalism is operating, there will be peace, there will be prosperity, there will be progress. So all you need to do is make sure the system keeps working. But the system is not working and there's no, there's stop progress, there's civil wars, there's no peace, there's massive migrations, there's ecological collapse, there's negative externalities. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I, mean, I think I think the thing he was right about is that you, we do get to keep neoliberalism and we do get to keep capitalism Unfortunately, democracy is going to be a casualty um, of, 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 of both of those things. And, and that is sort of turned out correct, unfortunately. Um, but actually, what I think we need to do first is to my, my kind of project really is, is thinking a little more to begin with, just at some of the foundation myths we have about order and about power. And looking at them and seeing that actually they're they're kind of foreclosing a lot of imaginative possibilities for us. Um, and and trying to explain the world in a way that makes sense, but but actually um, sort of cuts off ideas from us. So um, so let's see. Um, so first of all, can we talk a bit about stories per se? Because please, I've been yeah. About this. Okay. So well, there's if if you're kind of a, a you know novel writing one oh one. And um, you will you will be told just if I can interject because stories are very relevant because right now, even if the name of my podcast is Singularity FM, there is a predominant story or myth about what AI is or should be. There is a predominant story and narrative about Silicon Valley is and should be. There's a predominant story about what our future is or should be. And now we're finding that those stories are kind of being contested. Right. That's why I was saying I'm seeing a light in the tunnel if the Google lobbyists are not so much the good guys anymore, right? And they're playing defensive a lot more than ever. That means their story is not the dominant story anymore. Right. And this is where we need to go one step under and look at the structure and the types of stories. So that's perfect. So go ahead now. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, so so um so if you think about if you're if you're learning how to write a story. You will probably go to a creative writing class, and at some point, somebody will tell you about E.M. Forster, the English novelist from the early 20th century, and how he wrote, um, "The king died, the queen died." That's not a story, but the king died, the queen died of grief. That's a story. And why is it a story? Because it's got causality. And what is causality? It means one thing caused another thing. And now, once you've got A causes B, whoa! Now you've got a plot. So like, that's what a story is. It's basically saying one thing caused another thing to happen. And when you think a bit more about that, you realize that, ah, okay, so stories are not just, it's not just that these things are connected by a cause, but it's actually sort of making a normative claim about how the world works. You know, you, you read the story and you take it into you and the, and the story of, you know, of course the queen died of grief. Queens always die of grief. You know, <laughs> particular story. It, it, it's basically, you know, you're imbibing the facts of the two deaths, the causal link between them, but also a whole world of, of like a whole context of this is how stuff works. Like this is how people are. Just so, a funny <laughs> little side note. Uh, I bought my wife a mug that says, what is a queen without a king? Only more powerful. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you look at it many times when the king died 
and the, the queen didn't die out of grief, she became Catherine the Great, or, you know, the, one of those great queen, uh, the, the Queen of England or something like that, you know, those female matriarchs, you know, so... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, and stories tell, like, even, gosh, we could spend all day just talking about those two sentences, the king died, the queen died of grief. But, you know, there's also an assumption in there that it's the king and the queen who the story's about. Like, right, these are the exactly. people we should care about, you know, like, yeah. oh, really? Um, so, yeah. So there's, so those are, you know, so stories like have in them a lot of stuff that is kind of really implicit, but is even more powerful for that. Um, I gave a talk in, in um, the European Parliament a couple of years ago, and it was part of it was about that stories are, um, I always, I always put the, the, um, the headline in the wrong place in this, in this one, but basically when you think about, um, stories, there's something that like goes into your, your brain, you know, and you have, and the, you have an order of events, um, you have a certain amount of structure of feeling that kind of is involved with that story. And if it's a good story, if it's kind of a really slightly meaty, naughty story that leaves kind of unconscious elements unresolved, and I'm thinking the Pied Piper of Hamelin is such a story. It's just kind of a weird European medieval story that something horrifying happens in and it ends up really unresolved. And you end up, when you're a child, you hear about this story, which is about a man stealing children from a village that has double-crossed him. Um, that story stays in you and it kind of works on you for a long time. And it causes kind of almost like softer subroutines to go off unwittingly in your brain. And if you think about it in a way, a story is like a piece of malware in that it is software that has, it's like a set of executable files that go into your brain and make your brain do things and make you have feelings that are attached to those things that your brain is doing. Almost none of this, iceberg theory, almost none of this you have a conscious control over. You know, stories have gone into you and they're working on you and they're working through you in a way like all you are is, is sort of a, a channel that transmits the story to the next place the story wants to go. So like, um, yeah, so I just think, uh, you know, when you think about foundation myths, um, I've been thinking quite a bit recently about the Exodus story in the Old Testament of the Bible and also in the, the Torah, because it's sort of the foundation story of the Jewish people who were in Egypt and were, um, you know, effectively made slaves in Egypt and um, were in a really untenable situation. It was dangerous, the, the king of Egypt was um, worried about having them there, was kind of entrenching their freedoms. Um, eventually, um, two things happened. One, um, I guess the Exodus story is, is, is about the moment where the Jewish people cemented their special relationship with God. And God said, put lamb's blood on the door of all Jewish houses. And they did so. They marked all the doors of all of their houses. And that night, the hand of God passed over the city and all of the firstborn sons of every other house were, were murdered by God. Like, so, um, and the next day, the Jewish people left Egypt and they began their exodus and they eventually found the promised land. And that's you want to be, be a friend to that God, don't you? Yeah, right. That is, that is a, a, you know, some sense of vengeful God and it's, it's demanding God. You know, if a God does that for you, Oh my goodness! You've got to, you know, that's 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 a serious relationship. You've got to worry about what he's expecting from you. But like that story of Exodus, I mean, that's now what is it about two and a half thousand years old? That story, and if you are a people where that is your foundation story, and it, you know, it tells you you're special because you have this special relationship with God, and that's wonderful. But it also 
is a story that has wisdom that unpacks itself in you and through you over generations. And it's a story that tells you that one night you may go to bed and the next morning you're going to have to get up and leave your house and flee for your lives. And you may not even be able to bring um, the ingredients to make bread with you. Like you're one morning, you are just going to have to leave. And for the Jewish people throughout history, you have to look at it and imagine that story it's not a myth. It's basically a documentary that is repeated again and again, you know, and that story contains vital knowledge, like survival knowledge that, you know, Jewish people have needed to leave without a suitcase, leave under the cover of night, um, you know, just to survive. So like when you think, so like, I just think it's such a powerful foundation story, but also that just unpacks and works through you and tells you stuff that, you may not know you need to know until you know it. And when that moment comes, you will have that story in you and you'll know what to do. I mean, that's powerful. It, it is very powerful, but, but, but that's also true for many other peoples, right? Uh, the American story or mythology is that it's a city on a hill, uh, you know, with manifest destiny, mind you, mm -hmm. uh, right? So, so they have certainly a special relationship with God because they're the city on the hill and they have manifest destiny, which is a divine destiny, right? And Silicon Valley, interestingly enough, sees themselves very much in this kind of religious vein, if you will, right? They're the chosen people, especially the entrepreneurs. They're the chosen people uh, who can literally take us, the rest of humanity, by the hand and walk us into this future that's better than we think. Yeah, right. and if you were to pick a, a bunch of people who are less qualified and less capable um, <laughs> and, and more morally culpable, and like the last people who should be leading anybody by the hand, I think you could you would have to look long and hard for for you know a better group of people. But uh, yeah, these origin stories are powerful. I've been thinking also a lot recently about some like slightly particularly British ones, I guess, because as an Irish person in the UK, you know, it, like it's it's a complicated relationship. And, um, um, you know, and there's a lot of love in it, but but also a lot of pain. And um, from the so looking at it from the outside, some of the the ways, particularly the English state construes order and the necessity for order, it really binds it up with coercion and pain and suffering. And um, so a couple of the stories that they really, really, really draw on um, would be, you know, Hobbes's, Hobbes's Leviathan, the idea of, you know, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. Um, they're, you know, they, they, it's the, the power of, you know, the war of all against all. Um, like, and, and Hobbes, you know, was, a, was somebody who, who grew up during the English Civil War. I mean, he was born on it. And, you know, the day the Spanish Armada came to town. I mean, it was, he lived a very, Know, historically contingent life as we all do and he wrote a book about how the state needs to be powerful and centralized and coercive and if we don't have that my god it's all going to go to shit you know and that is a very particular piece of political philosophy from a very you know really certain set of contexts and and, and um, circumstances and yet it is sort of like an origin story for how state power should be and how sort of how state power just fundamentally is you know it's a story of people had to get together to pool their sovereignty in some kind of you know 
state of nature. Um, and they had to do this because if they didn't put all of their coercive power together, they would tear each other apart. And that is what is going to happen to us unless we have a really strong state that can punish people. You know, and it's a very, um, it's so much of it is, um, it's like, it's implicit. It's it's just, it's it's kind of that executable files in people's minds all the time of, well, of course, of course the state, you know, um, yesterday um, the, the British state announced that it was once again, uh, not going to hold an inquiry into the murder, the state-sanctioned murder of a solicitor, a uh, uh, Catholic solicitor in Northern Ireland uh, 20 years ago, Pat Finucan. And for most people, this is just a non-issue. Um, of course, the state has to punish people um, who, who consort with people they don't like. Like, naturally, the state is a coercive, ugly, you know, punitive institution. And so much of that is just down to no, you've got a really fucked up origin story, my people. Like that is not normal, and that is not universal. You know, you just think it is. But that's precisely the crux of it, yeah. Because the origin story tells us who we are, where we're coming from, and where we're going, and therefore it tells us what we should and we shouldn't do, what is and what is not allowed. You know, even whom we should marry and what kind of clothes we should wear and where we should go and where we shouldn't go and what we should think and who's God. And all of it is spelled out in that story. And it lasts for thousands and thousands of years. And that's why, you know, if we're able to start chipping at that story, you know, one chip at a time, eventually it could crumble. Now, we also need to provide a new story because in, in the sort of a vacuous state of story is a very dangerous state also if there's no overarching story and if you have like, you know, the, the, the sort of that like the violence can, can happen from a diversity of incompatible stories that, that don't play by the same rules. Um, yeah. And at the moment, a lot of the culture wars in this country, in the UK, and I think also in the US, you know, the whole stuff about pulling down statues of slavers and that, um, a lot of the culture wars are about people trying to come to terms with the fact that the nice kind of problem that they learned about their history, um, that the world was joyous and celebrating the arrival of the British Empire. Um, <laughs> you know, that this is this is not the case, that that's that it's untrue. It's simply untrue. And it's hard for people to get their minds and their hearts around that because it requires them to face up to, you know, unpleasant truths. But until you kind of have that foundation of understanding how you got to where you are and how your origin myth was not true. But guess what? Once you've like brushed away the false origin myth, it allows you to, you know, have a more truthful and um, better one. You know, um, the, the American political anthropologist James C. Scott um, famously wrote Seeing, Seeing Like a State. Um, oh, it's it's a wonderful one. I'll send you, send you the link. Um, but he, he had a new book out a couple of years ago, and it is called Against the Grain. And he has pulled on lots of archaeological and different, he's a bit like a magpie, he's pulled on lots of different types of research to look at the origin of human civilization in the city. And um, in the kind of, in our sort of foundational myth of how student, how, how people stopped being agrarian and came to live in cities, um, in our kind of historical imagining, it's something that happens quite quickly. Um, people just decided, realized that there was, you know, this kind of um, thing where you kind of did a bit of agriculture here, planted some crops, went away for a few months, came back again, and that they realized that it was really, really inefficient and that they wanted to have cities. They grouped into villages, those villages became cities. And um, 
Time passed and soon humans had accumulated enough capital to allow them to do architecture and writing and culture and civilization, right? James C. Scott kind of goes through a lot of stuff, um, especially in Mesopotamia. And as a child, I spent some time in Iraq um, visiting um, various of the cities that he, he, ancient cities that he talks about. And he just says, guys, I'm really sorry, but um, it turns out most human cities that we, the, and they did, you know, start some of them in this part of the world in, uh, you know, around the Tigris and the Euphrates, modern, modern day Iraq um, and around there. He says the cities were horribly, horribly unsuccessful places. People went to them. Um, they they basically had to stop farming um, in a much more productive way and to do the farming that supported the city. That meant that a lot of, a lot of people starved, that people were endemically malnourished for generations. Um, also, when people came to the cities, they got lots more diseases. So most cities failed and, and cities were awful for people for centuries. And it's great for us that we now get to live in a humanity that went through those horrible centuries and built cities and had civilization. But please do not fool yourselves. This was not a wonderful project. This was not like a, you know, returning to Eden type project. Um, cities were awful. And we have to understand that we are living on graveyards, you know, of people. And it's just like, it's a good story because it says the other story was a false story. This is a true story. And we can honor the people who came before us better as a result of it. Yeah, and you can easily even see it in the archaeological record because people lost like five inches of their size and you can see that they were malnourished in their bones and you can see there's much higher uh, percentage of young kids dying or young people dying and, and you can you can see all of that in the archaeological record, right? So if we shrink in size and our bones are malformed and, and we start developing, by the way, all kinds of spinal conditions because we're trying to, you know, toil the land and stuff like that. Uh, and which is why, by the way, Yuval Noah Harari calls uh, the agrarian revolution history's greatest fraud. Uh, because you know, it, it, it's perceived to be this kind of revolution, which often has this positive connotation. But actually, we had a shorter lifespan, more kids died, it, it, uh, we, we were more sickly, we had more chronic pain and more chronic disease and conditions, and we became entirely dependent on three or four, maybe top five uh, staple crops. Uh, and therefore a lot more liable to famines and, and, and problems. Uh, so failure that you're talking about became a lot more common. Uh, but that brings me to the topic of how AI, for example, is related to storytelling too, because, you know, the, the origin story of AI would be absolutely crucial for the future of humanity, right? Because you're just giving examples of how humans or a nation or a people's origin story has such a strong pull on them that basically can guide them or direct them for thousands of years. Well, isn't that same thing true about AI? Uh, and think of it, let's say, if the origin story and, and the context kind of greatly sets up the origin story. So in the uh, Jewish case, it's the Egyptian sort of slavery uh, context which sets up the the Exodus story, right? Well, in the AI story context, you can have let's say military context, and we can pretty much predict what kind of origin story that AI mm -hmm. would have, and and 
you know how it would treat people like enemies and how it would see definitely as one of the most likely possibility that it's okay to kill people right you can have a commercial context where ai uh, is given birth to and that kind of commercial story would easily predict that that people are clients or tools to be used or data points to be gathered and therefore manipulated as clients or customers or markets or any of that stuff. And maybe that's probably an idealistic take of it, but let's say if you have an open source kind of a collaborative um, context where AI is given birth to, maybe you have a higher likelihood of, of the AI eventually perceiving humanity as partners to, to collaborate with. Uh, side by side kind of right so so that and that's kind of oversimplifying it in many ways but those kinds of origin stories about the AI itself would have great impact not only on the AI but our relationship with the AI and how things could pan out in the future yeah the um for sure the way we start thinking about something tends to structure the way that we go on with it um you know, I was just um, rereading um, my copy of Walter Benjamin's Illuminations. Um, it's it's my copy from when I was 20 and I found it again recently. And I was just reading his, um, I don't know if you ever came across his essay, Thesis on the Philosophy of History. It changed my, it changed my life. In, in fact, it started my life. Um, uh, it, it just starts off, so Benjamin was a, a German um, Marx, Marxist, Marxian philosopher, writer, collector in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and uh, yeah, he's just been incredibly influential in a lot of people. Um, but um, so his, his, he's got a great thing about Marxist, Marxist history. But the beginning of it is just, it's about AI. And this is written in about, I don't know, 1919, 1920. He says, the story is told of an automaton constructed in such a way that it could win, it could play a winning game of chess, answering each move of an opponent with a counter move. A puppet in Turkish attire and with a hookah in its mouth sat before a chessboard placed on a large table. A system of mirrors created the illusion that this table was transparent from all sides. Actually, a little hunchback who's an expert chess player sat inside and guided the puppet's hand by means of strings. One can imagine a philosophical counterpart to this device the puppet calls historical materialism. It goes on into a, an analogy about historical materialism. But wow, I just thought, here we are, the automaton that is actually powered by um, human labor. Um, and that just, you know, it's, it's another origin story of AI, which is so much of what is currently sold as AI is, of course, um, cheap human labor that is kind of, you know, funneled in from less um, um, lower labor cost economies. And, and I think, you know, so many of the ways we're thinking about AI is is a sort of a magical machine-like thing that exists outside of us, when of course it is just merely a manifestation of who and what we are. Precisely, yeah, my, my point about uh, reflecting our own essence and not having one of its own. Uh, but, but that makes me think about something else, that mechanical Turk story, just like the human, the hunched human chess expert is powering the, the, the automaton, our story of the birth of the AI would power the AI in a way. Yeah, it will. And for my money, I think um, I think a lot of the military applications and uses are, you know, seem to be where uh, a lot of the capital is currently concentrated, um, and where the, you know, the the institutional incentives are such um, 
that it's, you know, we're going to see, we already are seeing, obviously, you know, the use of AI for target acquisition, uh, use of AI to, you know, to to power what we used to call fire and forget missiles, but in act, in fact, to to be able to, to you know, path and redirect as they go. Um, like basically taking away of human agency and responsibility from um, from the act of, of killing people. Um, you know, I actually wrote my master's thesis on that topic. Ah. And the funny, that's how I got into the whole thing about the singularity and discovered Ray Kurzweil, because, you know, I was writing sort of in the early 2000s, and then the, the popular idea in academia was, well, not, well, let's say the most popular idea, or one of the, I'd say the most popular idea at the time was Samuel Huntington's idea, the clash of civilizations. And we had these kind of friction points between the East and the West. And, you know, Afghanistan was one of those points and blah, blah, blah. And then we can explain everything. And so I argued in my master's degree thesis, which was written on drone warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan, that what we're witnessing there is not the clash of civilization, but the first time in the history of the world where increasingly automated machines are taking increasingly automated decisions as per whether a human being would live or die. Mm -hmm. So that was what was unique about those conflicts, not that whole clash of civilizations. Uh, because that's when we had the first predator drones, which originally just the CIA had a couple of them, you know, modified predator drones, they killed someone in Yemen, and then they started using them in Afghanistan and Iraq, and eventually people started deliberately producing them and so on and so on. That was 20 years ago, and now we have tens of thousands of them. Um, but Maria, you know, I love talking to you. We are already way past our allotted time, but I want to keep you for another 20 minutes or so if it's okay, because I really want to talk about first your TechPro articles, which is I think damn brilliant, as I said in the beginning, and, and I can't forgive myself if we don't go over it. Um, and then sort of go back to the big picture for our final sort of takeaway message. But let's talk a little bit about Tristan Harris as an example, specific example of the Prodigal Tech Pro, what you call the Prodigal Tech Pro, but also as a prototype of that hero's journey, that type of a hero's journey. Because what happened was I had Tristan on my podcast and you know I I I really liked the guy and I felt like I was a total asshole to him. Uh, we kind of had a big disagreement in my in my opinion he didn't know what technology means. He had no clue certainly about what ethics actually is uh, which you know I, I'm discovering more and more often that people who are in a very key tech positions with ethics, something in their title, like design ethicist or something, they don't have basic clue about what actually ethics means or stands for or is. Mm -hmm. um, and But on the other hand, I really like him. So I tried to even delete many of the things from the interview I edited. I, I even undercut my own opinion of, of him by putting his other work at the beginning of, 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 of the article. I even called him my hero, which is not entirely honest, uh, but I said that I'm more demanding and more expectant of my heroes, because if you're my hero, I expect you to know more, to be more, to do more, 
and I was disappointed in that sense in Tristan that I discovered he doesn't really know more, he doesn't he, uh, do more, and he's like really like not quite there yet. <laughs> and so I really felt like an asshole towards a nice guy. And then like, I don't know, almost a year later, I get to read your, your article and my thing is like, damn it, she nailed it. How didn't I see it that clearly at the time first? And second, I should have been harder on him. <laughs> I should have been even harder on him. And you know, of course, one thing which often happens with people who come on my podcast is like, they want to forget that they've ever been on my podcast. And that was a great example of that. Because as his PR person said, they want to spread the message. They want to sh spread the message. And my response uh -huh. to that was like, well, my concern is first you have to live the message before you're able to spread it or before you're worthwhile spreading any message, you actually have to live it. And I'm not sure you guys are living it. Secondly, you have to focus on having a good message, a proper message. I'm not sure you got that part either. So if you just expect, expect me to blindly spread your message, no. And and that happened, you know, with Bill Nye, the science guy. It happened with a bunch of other people on my show who come, do an interview, and then they want to forget <laughs> that they've ever been to my podcast. Because maybe, that's my hypothesis, they perceive themselves that they don't look so good uh, in that podcast or in that particular occasion. And also because they get challenged sometimes in a way that they're not used to be get to, cha to be challenged. And maybe they don't see the reflection or they don't enjoy the reflection that's coming back at them and then they want to forget it and they never share, never comment, never reply to my email afterwards, etc. Mm -hmm. So that's happened quite a few times. But so that was like a arrogant, selfish digression, I should probably say about me and my work. Let's go to you and your work, which is the important stuff here, which is the Tech Pro article. Tell us what's the, the gist of your argument and the, the, the core of the problem with Tristan Harris in particular and the prototypical sort of, I've lost my way, I found my way again, now come see my TED talk kind of tech guy. Yeah, um, so I'm not, like I'm not so concerned with particular individuals so much as the broader phenomenon. And, and I think that's one example of it, but um. So I wrote this piece called The Prodigal Tech Bro, which was about, and I wrote it, it was, it was published in, um, on The Conversationalist uh, in, I think, early this year, probably March, April, May, sometime around then. And, um, and then it kind of came, went, went somewhat viral again during the, um, the Social Dilemma film that was, documentary that was on Netflix a month or two ago. And so the, this story is, is about, it's asking why are this, the, not just the same kind of guys, but the same actual guys who helped build up the, um, you know, social media empire with all of its um, deleterious effects. Why are they at the center of the conversation about how to fix it? Um, and it uses a really well-known story, at least in 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 the, a Bible story. So for one tradition, about the prodigal son, and the prodigal son um, is a, a parable told by Jesus. And it's basically, it's a story about religion and about forgiveness. And it's a lovely story. It's basically uh, a father, a landowner has two sons and uh, the younger son comes to him one day and says, um, I want to have, basically I want to cash in my inheritance and I want to go away and live my life. 
And the father is a bit sad, but says, okay, fine. And basically sells a bunch of land or whatever he has to do, gives his son a load of money and the son goes away, um, not to seek his fortune so much as to spend his fortune. And so the, this son goes to a neighboring country, spends all of his money on alcohol, on women. I always, I'm always a little bit offended by how women are always treated as a commodity that you spend money on, and it's a bad thing. But anyway, we leave, we leave that for the, the time being. He spends all of his money and he runs out of money. And all of the friends who he had when he was he had loads of money to spend and disappear and he's on his own and he has to get a job. He can't get a job because he has no skills. And so he ends up um, begging and receiving a position as a person, a swine herd, as somebody who looks after pigs. And the job is so lowly, it doesn't pay money. It doesn't even pay food. Um, he literally is reduced to eating the food that the pigs eat, um, to eating their leftovers, to eating the leftovers of swine. Um, and, you know, for so many cultures, pigs are the lowest of the low, um, which is unfortunate because pigs are really, really, really intelligent creatures. We used to have a pet pig. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. Um, so he's this is this is the, the prodigal son and he kind of reaches his rock bottom in that moment when he is literally eating the pig's food and he says to himself, um, I am so much worse off than one of my father's servants. I am going to um, renounce what I've done and return to my father's house and beg him to take me on as one of his servants so that I can earn an honest wage and eat again. And that's where I need to go. And so he returns to his father's house and his father sees him coming, orders the fatted calf to be um, slaughtered, throws a big party. Um, the prodigal son's older brother, uh, or is it his, yeah, his older brother um, complains to the father and says, I've looked at, I've done the right thing all these years. I haven't been given so much as a goat to have with my friends. Um, and now you're slaughtering the fatted calf for this guy who's gone off and spent his inheritance. And the father basically says, um, you know, all the joy in heaven comes to somebody who's, who's, who's sort of repented and come back and he's my son and I love him. And so that's a long retelling of that story, but it's a long retelling because the story of the prodigal son is so often kind of squeezed um, until the, the good and important bits are gone from it. And the really important bit that is gone from it so often and is very much in the story of the prodigal tech bro is um, guys who used to work for um, big tech companies um, doing pretty awful things, making a shit ton of money, um, have now somehow come to their senses and are now... Um, somewhat sorry about what they've done, but mostly need to be at the center of helping us figure out what we do now. And it's a really, the important thing is about, like, that's not the story of the prodigal son. Like the story of the prodigal son is somebody who made a terrible decision, who um, lost everything and realized that he could, had no further claim to status or money and had to beg to be given the lowliest position and just because his father was a forgiving type of person, his father let him come back into the house. And, and um, although friends of mine have told me since that, in fact, his father, they believe because of their reading of, of, of um, local law at the time that he was actually not going to get the inheritance again. So there is that. Um, but he got a big party. Um, but the prodigal tech bro is about how we sort of allowed, sort of just um, moved up along the bench and made space for these guys to be at the very, very centre of the conversation um, when we've missed the important bit of the story, and the important bit of the story is, is when you repent. And I'm sorry, it's an old school, it's an old school um, concept, but it says something really important about 
the moment in the story where the prodigal son says, I fucked up so badly that nobody should ever listen to me again. Um, and I'm just going to have to spend the rest of my life trying to be a lowly servant. And that's not what, what these guys are about. You know, the, the, the Center for Humane Technology or whatever it's called. And, you know, I've, I've come across yeah. a couple of other, uh, others of them um, in Cambridge and that. And There's a whole industry of them. There's a whole industry of this stuff. And at no point in their kind of narrative arc is there ever the moment of, so guys, I used to be the director of monetization at Facebook. All of those teenage girls who, you know, were committing self-harm because of, of, of the way we drove the algorithms to make them feel like shit. I feel terrible about that. I am so fucking sorry. You shouldn't actually be listening to me. So I'm going to go away now. You know, that's kind of what it, that's what it would be if it was the prodigal son. But that's not what it is. But as you know yourself, the the irony and 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 that's where your article comes to hit home so well is that let's say me and you are applying to get a keynote speaking position to a conference, and this guy is. Chances are the organizers and many other people would be like, "Oh yeah, he was like the head of monetization of Facebook. Let's get him. Who are these bozos? You know? Yeah. Oh, they've been talking about what he wasn't supposed to do for the last decade or longer." It doesn't matter. He's the guy who was in charge of in charge of monetization, right? Yeah. And like you say, it's the hero's journey. It appeals to us because we kind of think we sort of just foreshorten the whole, you know, ugly, messy human bit where somebody goes, I fucked up. I'm really sorry. I'm going to try and do better. And just gone to, I was a really shiny tech executive. And now I'm a really shiny tech speaker, evangelist, I've got my own center. It's in, it's in, you know, whatever it is. Sorry. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be too much about one person because, and I'll tell you why it's, it's not just because I'm squeamish about, about kind of, um, um, you know, be, being unpleasantly criticizing one individual. Um, but it's more because this is a structural problem. This is, you I know, not, with a, you completely, yeah. not a one-off. And so here's here's my theory about what what is actually going on here. I think um, because also I did it did a, a speaking thing in Cambridge for you know lovely friends of mine, but also about one of these books by these guys. Um, I watched that video. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, so yeah, I was I was polite. I think. Um, oh, you were good. You were very good. I'm a lot less polite when I go to speak at those places. Let me tell you. I'm getting less polite, definitely. I'm getting less polite. It's funny because I'm actually moving the other way. I think I'm I'm getting to be more polite. I used to be a lot worse. And now you're going the other way. That's funny. The other way around. Yeah. So what I think is happening is that there are lots of, you know, social affordances, let's call them that, for let's let's center the white guy in the discourse. Okay, we know that. So so let's park that one. I think what's also going on here is what are the acceptable are, what are what is what critiques of technology are acceptable to Silicon Valley and to executives in those companies and to funders of you know centers in Stanford and, and this place and that place? Like what kinds of arguments are acceptable in that they're somewhat critical, but they don't really go to the center of the business model, right? And can are there people who can make those arguments in ways where you know, they're worried, like, we're still their friends. They are worried that we will not take their calls. So, you know, what kind of, what are the, who are the people who can make those arguments that are acceptable to us? So I think in a way, this is just the, the um, public manifestation of Silicon Valley funding its weakest opponents. I think it's as simple as that. That's brilliantly put. That's brilliantly put. And I would be amiss if I, I want to read the whole piece 
uh, on the podcast just because it's so brilliant. But I want to read two or three excerpts just because it's so dead on, like, critical and, and it's so well written. So you say, <clears throat> we all need second chances, even if we don't need those fresh starts ourselves. We want to live in a world where people have a reason to do better. But the prodigal tech bros redemption arc is so quick and smooth, it's barely a road bump. That's because we keep skipping the most important part of the prodigal son story, where he hits rock bottom. And you already were talking about that. Then you continue to say a little later. It's a great metaphor for how to run a religion, but a lousy way to run everything else. Prodigal tech bro stories skip straight from the past when they were part of something that, surprise, turned out to be bad to the present where they are now moral authority on how to do good, but without the transitional moments of revelation and remorse. And that's the part where I got so disappointed that he's even clueless about what ethics means or even what the origins of technology are. Um, there I was lost, but now I'm found. Please come to my TED talk. Accounts typically miss most of the actual journey, yet claim the moral authority of one who's been there but came back. It's a teleportation machine, but for ethics. This is just pure genius, I swear. The only thing that more fungible than cold, harsh cash is privilege. The prodigal tech pro doesn't so much take an off-ramp from the relatively high status and well-paid job he left when the scales fell from his eyes as zoom up on an on-ramp in a new sector that accepts the reputational currency he has accumulated. He's not joining the resistance. He's launching a new kind of startup using his industry contacts for seed funding in return for some reputation laundering. This is like brilliant stuff. Uh, and you went to, towards the end to say the prodigal, the prodigal tech bro doesn't want structural change. He's reassurance, not revolution. He's invested in the status quo if we can only restore the founder's purity of intent. This is brilliant. I actually pushed on him on all those points. Uh, you know how Robert McKee was making exponential return on Facebook and then maybe gave a million dollars to Tristan to found the, to found the Center for Humane Society. So you're making a billion dollar worth of damage on the one hand, and you're giving like a penance to, to clear up your conscience on the other end with a million. It's kind of like highly disproportionate, you know, exponential damage, linear kind of fixing of the things, if it's fixing anything at all. And yeah, at least medieval indulgences, the, the donors were, were not allowed to save what it went to. They just had to give the bloody money and piss off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because like, because also, you know, not not just centering the kinds of people and their career paths and why we want, like, you know, I think you have a lot of sort of emotions about like that interview also because there is something in us that wants that guy to be the hero. We want the person who has been on that journey to be better and we want him to have the answers and the solutions you know because it sort of means that nothing fundamental has to change if the same people who did this can fix this right you know it's it's a much we've got a really profound need for that guy to be the protagonist and it's just not that kind of story you know we're not going to get that kind of emotional payoff um the other yeah. thing is i look at the um the issues that 
the sort of permissible issues of those sorts of people. And, you know, the, the permissible critiques are tend to be about um, social media is bad because the algorithms and the way content is and engagement is pushed at us and cause us to spend more of our time than we would like to using these devices. And so they take our time away and they take our attention and our attention is the most um, powerful and important profound thing we have where we decide to choose it. And I sort of think, you know, on one level, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And that's why I use one of these things. You know, I wish I didn't have to, but there you go. Um, but also it's such a fucking privileged position to be in like your problem with the thing that broke democracy and that is driving rape culture. Your problem is that it makes a bit hard for you to get through your to-do list. Like seriously, that's the fucking structural problem that you see with this stuff. That is not a problem. Like, you know, and it's just, yeah, the attention stuff. And that's kind of permissible type of argument they're allowed to make, which is these things take away our attention. So we must kind of tweak them so that they, you know, they're not getting between us and sleep. Or so tell us more about the, the way that they, sh they should be properly criticized. So um, straight off, and I, and I think, you know, there are some people who have managed the one step in Silicon Valley, one step out of it slightly better, somewhat better. And um, Jaron Lanier is an interesting guy in that he's at least able to say, it's the fucking business model. Excuse my French. Sorry, it's getting late in the day. Um, it's the business model, stupid. Um, you know, the fact that we have decided that the only way to internet in 2020 is by using advertising surveillance. Like, that is a historically contingent choice that is based on very, very narrow definitions of shareholder interest and, you know, executive privilege. This is not the only way to internet in the world, but we are presented with it as this is the only way we can possibly imagine having the internet for everyone is to base it on ad tech. That's bullshit, you know? So so straight away, you know, as, as soon as ad tech goes away, all the problems about attention and, you know, clicks and radicalization, all of that stuff goes away. There are then hard problems about how do we fund this stuff? How do we distribute it? How do we do the infrastructure? You know, basically, do we use taxation? Do we use um, revenue, you know, um, subscription models? Like, how do we, as a society, make sure that we have connectivity for everybody? Like, I would talk to you about incentives and incentivizing. How do you incentivize innovation if you don't have that, they would say? Yeah, and I'd say, how do humans do things that are bigger than us? We use... Um, institutions to do them and we develop all sorts of political structures around those institutions to make sure those institutions are responsive to us and serve our better interest collectively it brings them out in hives because then you're talking about governments and states but like you know how do we solve water we don't get the private sector does not solve water for us how do but we they solve would say you're talk you're a communist because what you want to do right now is you want yeah. to nationalize Facebook and Google and you want to turn them into an institution where they are corporations and their highest duty is to the shareholders. You know, personally, I know I'm not a communist. I'm just a kind of fairly mild-mannered European social democrat. I just sound like a fucking communist because these guys are so extreme. Um, we can do internet in so many different ways once we realize that it's public infrastructure it's like electricity, it's like clean water, it's like the ability to walk down the street without being afraid of being raped. Like it's a collective public good that is absolutely necessary for humans to function um, happily and productively in society. And when we need to do big things, we come together and build big institutions and we build ways to hold them accountable. 
This is what humans do. You know, it's funny because I did a speech on new technocracy where I argued that the future is a public good and shouldn't be privatized. Uh, It's not like a like a Disneyland, some private corporate retreat where, you know, or it shouldn't be at least, right? Because it should be a public good and it should be something that we all create for each other rather than a place that we go to visit. Because right now the idea is come to visit Singularity University and you'll be visiting the future. That's kind of the narrative, right? And that's why Singularity University has been so popular is because, oh, you want to see the future? Come visit us. Come visit Silicon Valley, NASA's Ames campus, Google, Facebook, uh, and you'll see the future. Whereas my argument, and it took me a while, I have to say, to get to it was like, that's not a future. That's just like your skewed, partial, self-serving story of the future in which you're on top and everyone else is just following your lead. And, and that may actually be the path to our destruction. Massively. That's like, show me your, your brilliant healthcare system. And you're like, here's this wonderful, um, you know, private room in a hospital with all of the incredible, um, you know, technology and choices and, and fantastic best doctors in the world at your disposal. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's that's one part of your healthcare system. The other part of your healthcare system is black women dying in childbirth and pregnancy and labor because you don't even have basic healthcare. Like these are both parts of the system, but you're showing me the shiny bit. I don't believe it. Yeah, you know, the average Canadian lives about three and a half years longer than the average American. And we are very, 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 very similar. We have almost the same economy in so many ways. We're very close to each other in so many ways. Like if there's one country that's the closest to the US, that's Canada. And yet we live on average almost four years longer than the average American. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, in a way, like what, what America is doing with these big tech companies is exporting a view of the world that basically says we're going to do the Internet the way Americans do healthcare, you know. And that is a terrible, terrible idea. And it's it's massively destructive. But um, you know, coming back to the state thing and 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 being a communist, um, um, because you know, that's that's kind of the, the play that the when when you talk about public infrastructure and how we provide it collectively, um, you know, the first place um Silicon Valley type guys go is you're a communist, and then the second the second kind of concern troll place they go is um oh, you know, I wish we could, but like, it's the tragedy of the commons. There's nothing we can do about that. And so, you know, there you are. Um, and actually the tragedy of the commons, you know, is one of those those false narratives, false origin myths about how we do stuff collectively. Um, you know, and Russell Harden's piece was, what was it? Like 16 pages long. It is tens of thousands of references to it. I mean, it's it's just one of the most viral things ever. And it has been shown repeatedly and comprehensively to be incorrect about how we manage common uh, commons themselves and common goods. And you know, you look you look at the the actual um, empirical lifetime of work that um, that Lynn Ostrom has done uh, or did. Uh, you know, she won a Nobel Prize for her work on how humans sustain and manage commons all around the world in all types of places and the like British Columbia for example the the natives the, the the natives lived there for thousands of years in harmony with nature Europeans came in and in 200 years we fished out all the fish the salmon was gone we cut out all the trees and everything why because again our origin stories are very different 
right? And because part of our st origin story is that idea of the, you know, Hobbesian uh, uh, Leviathan, the merry state of nature of war against war, uh, one against all and all against one, and, and also that kind of tragedy of the commons. But the natives who lived there for thousands of years never went out of equilibrium. They were in total equilibrium for thousands of years, right? So they managed the commons quite well. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting involved with um, um, a foundation in Australia and hoping to do some work with them on, on indigenous futurism um, because, you know, in various indigenous people around the world, um, you have whole literatures um, that are very, very different from our kind of Western canon of it's got to be novel sized and shaped. It's got to have a protagonist. It's got to have conflict. It's got to have closure. You know, it ends when we do. Um, and and um, I just just am really kind of getting into talking to some people about different storytelling traditions, um, which I think are going to be key for us in the future because two things really, one, you know, several of the indigenous storytelling traditions I've come across so far um, have a lot of the kind of the collective work that those stories do is to think about how do I be a good ancestor? As in, how do I be a person who does good for the people who will come after me? Like, I, you know, I don't read that in most of our novels. I'm reading it like there's, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson, is a science fiction writer who's doing fantastic work on that um but like as, as in literature as the whole there's not a huge amount of that and then the other is you know how do I be a good community member there's a writer called Daniel Heath Justice actually who's in Ottawa I think um and he he writes a lot about you know indigenous literatures and how they try and sort of inculcate and interrogate those kinds of values and questions and it's not to say that you know, there's this one perfect people who are untouched by Western civilization and, and they will save us. Like, you know, that's all levels and kinds of problematic. But there are different storytelling traditions that I think we're going to need to tap into and learn from, because also a lot of those indigenous storytelling traditions are about and from people whose futures were ripped away from them. Like there are um, and they go on and their stories kind of grow around that. They grow around the wound and they incorporate the wound and they, you know, they tell the story of it. It's like, how do you imagine a future when the future you thought you were going to have, you know, has been taken away? And that's what we're going to need to be doing over the next century. You know, I, funny you say that because one of the conclusions I, I uh, reached when I working on my own sort of rewriting uh, the human story, how our story determines our future, was precisely that, that we need to go beyond humanism or transhumanism, that there's a danger of a single story and we and, and a benefit to many stories and how the future cannot be told by one person, one nation, one ethnicity, one religion, uh, maybe not even one species, but but it has to be kind of a mosaic and has to be able to have space to maybe even incorporate, even leave space or clearing for the stories of other species or intelligent or, you know, uh, sentient beings. Um, but speaking of Kim Stanley Robinson, I, you reminded me, I'm going to be interviewing him at the end of the month. And I know you've, oh. you've uh, mentioned him so many times in your article. So I give you this unique opportunity. If you have one question to ask him, what would that be? Ah, um, what would I ask Kim Stanley Robinson? 
funnily enough, we're doing a, a seminar with him on Crooked Timber um, about his new book, The Ministry for the Future. So um, we are doing an interview on that book, too. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, so uh, I don't know what I would ask him. I think probably mostly I would just want to thank him, you know, thank him for New York 2140, which is the most joyous, um, liberatory book about the near future and how um, we don't get saved by, you know, a couple of pro plucky protagonists um, about how it's collective action and how he manages to make something novel-sized and shaped out of collective action. It's just joyous and riotous. Now you're going to have to make me read another book before I interview you. So, so it's like I have to do even more work now. <laughs> Damn it. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. here's the thing. Can I just say that, like, I, I know we're going over time, but there's a whole... I think that, like, novel-shaped stories, um, and I think... And I hope we're going to be able to expand them into more immersive media over the next decade. Um, you know, I don't necessarily see the book as being, you know, I would love for us to make stories that we can almost literally live inside because I think novels, stories that have kind of enough thickness and depth and uncertainty um, without resolution are thinking and feeling spaces where we individually, collectively do the work that we have to do in order to imagine different futures. And part of the collective work we have to do is um, stuff we really shy away from, especially in Western culture, but that is mourning. We have to mourn the future that we thought we were going to have, you know, a future ever brighter and better and progressive and more techy and shiny and all of those things. Like, we're not going to have that future. And for us to be able to do the work of building good futures, plural, that we can have, um, I think we first have to do the work of coming to terms with the fact that we fucked this up. Like as the a future is dead, long live the future. The future is dead, long live the future, but also I'm 48, um, you know, my generation and, and I think probably my parents' generation, um, the history is not going to be kind to us, nor should it be. And we have to, you know, and for us to sort of be able to collectively set up a situation where other people can do good work, I think, Part of it is getting past that Trumpian, I'm angry about the future because I hate it, so I'm going to try and elect a government that only punishes other people. You know, like, I think novel-sized, novel-shaped things help us to think through and process and work, do the work of mourning, which is, you know, solastalgia about mourning the damage we have done to the climate, mourning the world we have killed, and so that another world can be reborn. I think there's a huge amount um, that we need. And we also need novels and novel-shaped things, perhaps immersive media, that allow us to decenter ourselves and not, you know, constantly expect a protagonist, a Tristan Harris, to come and save us. Like, he is just one guy. I personally am, would not want to be hard on him at all because he is carrying the weight of expectations of people who want a hero to save us, and that's not going to happen. And we need to live inside novel-shaped things that help us come to terms with that. Funny you say that because that was I I I I wrote that piece uh, to go along with the interview and I said, you know, Tristan was my hero, but I'm tougher on my heroes because I expect them to be more, do more, know more, and all that. And maybe that's part of the issue. And you're nailing it so well because I discovered he's not the hero I'm hoping for that's gonna pull us out. So in in part of my disappointment with that interview was precisely this. And and becoming aware that there's no hero coming to save us, uh, whether you call it 
uh, you know, a human being or whether you call it the divine intervention or whether you're calling it technological scientific breakthrough, none of those on its own is going to be sufficient or enough to get us through this century, uh, perhaps. Yeah. And also, like, I haven't, I haven't really developed my thinking on this enough yet, but I think there's, I really intuitively sense that our desire for stories to have endings and for us to see the ending, like that's, you know, you look at, you look at a, like a, you know, a, the Greenlander saga or the, you know, the Eric the Red saga or, you know, lots of different forms of storytelling. Um, you know, even the, the, the Old Testament of the Bible with all its problematic um, twists and turns, like they're not about there being an ending, you know, and I think we've, we've kind of got a, a sort of a cultural a set of desires and structure of feelings that requires resolution and requires us to, to witness the resolution and not merely witness it, but to bring it about. And I think if we're going to be able to pass enough on to the people who come after us, you know, we have to get over this idea that we're going to be there for the, the saving the world bit. Because one, that's not us, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> we did not save the world. Um, but two, the desire, you know, to either save it or fuck it. Like those, those, neither of those things are options that are available to us. You know, we have to decenter ourselves and realize that our job is just to, to leave enough choices, you know, be they in terms of the topography of the internet and it not foreclosing every, you know, option for innovation and programming um, or, you know, climate change or democracy. Like our job is just to like hand over enough tattered shreds that the people who come after us can weave it into something new and functional again. That's, that's all we're, that's, if we do that, we will be doing so well. Wow. Maria, uh, where can people go and find more about Maria Farrell and kind of learn about you and follow your work? So I'm on Twitter, but I realize that's, <laughs> that's pathological and I really shouldn't be. Um, so a place to go to find some of my work um, is a website that will be launching very shortly, which is mariafarrell.com, M-A-R-I-A-F-A-R-R-E-L-L. Um, and also, but for many years, I've been blogging on the group blog, crookedtimber.org, um, and that's a great place to go. And then the two other places um, uh, are Medium, where I've done a bunch of commissioned work, and also The Conversationalist, which is a fantastic um, journalistic enterprise, and I encourage you to look it up. I actually plan to link to many of your uh, articles that I enjoy tremendously and that we mentioned during our conversation today. So we, we touched on so many things today. We spent enormous amount on the importance of story, which was kind of a pleasant surprise to me also. Uh, what's the one thing that you want to send us away with? Um, the one thing I'd love to send people away with is Something I've noticed recently, and I knew you wouldn't do this because you're better than this, um, Nicola, is um, people often conclude interviews with, so do you feel optimistic or pessimistic? Um, and I think that's just such a BS question because this isn't about our feelings. What I would like to send people away with, and what I think is a much better question is, you see the problems we have in the world, what are you doing about them? Um, you know, I know what I'm doing, I'm trying to like, come up with better metaphors, better stories, get them out into the world. Um, I'm trying to be a better, um, you know, participant in, in, you know, political organizing and collective work. Um, and I'm trying to be a better friend and neighbor. Like that's, 
And that's what I'm doing. And I think the one thing I kind of would like to send people away with is um, we face vast um, centuries-wide structural um, existential problems as a species, and yet we are each only one person. And as Ada Palmer said on a previous podcast of yours, which I've listened to obsessively, small victories and partial victories are victories. So um, which victories you know, are you working towards and how are you going to get there? Wow, that's, that's very beautifully said. Maria Farrell, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, cheers. Thank you, Nicola, for having me. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 